if it is true that life begins at 40, Sykes, Davies and Co. have some big trouble with Jonathan Ray. I'm Lewis Sudderby and you're listening to Bike Live. Let's go! And it's a very warm welcome to all of you once again to episode two of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 uh, here in 2017. A very, very warm welcome to all of you for listening and for downloading this week's show and for all of you that listened and downloaded to our launch show a couple of weeks ago with Chaz Davies and Greg Haynes. We very much thank you for all of your support. You can still listen to all of that again if you head to our SoundCloud feed and head to YouTube where our interview with Chaz Davies is still up and running. We're here this week to talk about the aftermath of the Phillip Island round of the World Superbike Championships and Jonathan Ray turning 40 as he reached 40 World Superbike victories, which is pretty sensational given that he's only had two and a bit years on a race-winning bike. He really has been dominating over the last couple of years, but there's so much more to talk about from that opening round in Australia. We'll talk about how Chaz Davies played the long game, how Tom Sykes still hates Phillip Island, uh, and we will talk about that mega World Supersport race, which was basically a prison riot with motorbikes. Um, <laughs> it was some, some race won by Robbie Rolfo. We'll talk about that too in one of the closest finishes in Supersport history. We'll also talk about the news from MotoGP this week and indeed Moto3, where the British talent team has been launched. John McPhee will be leading them this year. And we will talk about the story so far in 2017 in MotoGP and if Vinales and Marquez will be the men to be. Testing seems to suggest they will. Uh, join me once again this week in the um, continued absence of Rebecca James, who's still trying to pick herself up off the floor after Alex Lowe's impressive displays last weekend, um, is Andre Harrison. Welcome along, Dre. Yes, Dr. Dre in the house here, still trying to resuscitate Rebecca James as we speak. But in the meantime, again, you're stuck with me. I apologise in advance. Um, Bex is coming, we promise. We say this every week. It's a bit like when Jon Stewart was gone from The Daily Show. And John Oliver had to come up with a different line every time to, to explain her absence. We will find her eventually, we promise. But yeah. um, just, just want to say before we get started real quick, massive thanks to everybody that listened to episode one. It was part of the reason we had our most ever listened to week. I mean, okay, we had yes. two shows. We kind of cheated, um, <laughs> if I'm being honest. But at the same time, the fact that many people tweeted into me and the podcast where they say, yeah, we're watching World Superbikes this weekend because of our preview. That fills me with immense pride. So thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the weekend as much as we did because it was a fantastic weekend of racing. Yeah, and thank you to World Superbikes for making sure that we didn't look particularly stupid by bigging this up <laughs> because God. it was a fantastic weekend. Um, three outstanding races. Um, we'll come on to those in a moment. Before that, though, um, if this is the first time you've listened to us, welcome, first of all. And if it is, then here are the places you can find us. You can find us um, on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash motorsport101. That includes back issues of Bike Live and Motorsport 101. Um, so you can find all the previous episodes on there. Uh, we are on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, at motorsport underscore 101. Um, if you um, want to read Drace 1330, which is well underway, you can head to the website, motorsport101.net. And if you like us so much that you'd like to back us financially, you can by heading to Patreon, patreon.com 
forward slash motorsport 101 which hands you plenty of cool perks including early access to both of our weekly shows bike live and motorsport 101 so much better at the plugging stuff than i am it's really <laughs> annoying <laughs> <laughs> yeah someone's been doing their homework um yeah, but, but very yeah, good, very yeah good. it's um yeah well let's uh, let's look back then on this incredible start to, to 2017 i mean drake before we talk about any of the races specifically we let's talk about the weekend as a whole because we had been waiting the best part of four months for this oh, yeah. um so i guess given that we've been waiting so long any race would come across as a good race because we've been so starved of it for so long but yes. world superbikes philip island delivered didn't it Oh, you know, I'm so glad Philip Island is the opening round because I think it's just one of the finest circuits in the world of motorsport, period, especially when it comes to bikes. And for some reason, it just has this knack of producing fantastic races. It's almost like it's some kind of equalizer for, for bikes out there where no one can really establish dominance or break out from the field unless you're brad binder but in, in any case it's it, it's it's produced many a classic and d- again philip island didn't disappoint both races were competitive um for different reasons both i mean the first half of race one where there was a one point a leading group of 14 bikes within yeah. two and a half seconds of each other that's unprecedented for world superbike it was like watching the moto free race um for, for a good while there so the fact that philip island is such an equalizing place it is um a place where the rider tends to make the difference um that's the perfect advertisement to start a series and seeing the sea of well mostly red bikes throughout the field mm. Uh, in World Superbikes um, if it had to start the season was was tremendous and again as we said both races absolutely delivered yeah a lot of red at the front of World Superbikes this weekend I and all the, and I watched yeah, it again. a lot of very similar looking bikes yeah, um, which, which may become an issue if we have these similar kind of leading groups as the year goes on um, but uh, as it turned out throughout the weekend and we'll start at the sort of the start of the weekend um, with Superpole because it was very much an all green affair uh, at the front mm-hmm. of the grid um, Tom Sykes who we sort of suggested in the run up to the weekend um, may not still be the fastest guy in the world of a one lap he certainly wasn't around Philip Island um, whether that's a surprise or not um, is your own open to your own interpretation but Jonathan Ray beating him to pole uh, on Saturday afternoon and first of all Dre how impressive was that given that the Kawasaki's were both in the mid 29s around Philip Island and the world the absolute fastest lap there on a MotoGP bike is a low 28 incredible um it's it's it says a lot of things that you know these riders are almost equally as incredible as some of the moto gp riders in here and we've said it before i said jonathan ray would be a top tier moto gp rider if he was in there right now and he was on the right bike i have no question of that and the man is an absolutely sensational talent Chaz Davis has come a long way from his 250cc days. Um, again, Tom Sykes is an absolutely demonic level qualifier. And the fact these guys are running mid-29s in, in qualifying trim, it proves that the Haref test where you know everybody was kind of cynical when Jonathan Ray set that sensational test time that beat half the MotoGP field and everyone was like, oh, well, they put qualifiers on it. And, you know, he he, he had it in qualifying trim and he did it to make a point. And listen, these these bikes are really, really fast. There is is no question about it. And as Greg Haynes did such a brilliant job of explaining Mm -hmm. a fortnight ago, like there's less and less parts that need to be homologated now to, to sell on the road they don't have to sell as many road bikes anymore like they used to um it's it's bridging the gap it's making the product seem more impressive because these bikes are incredible and they're only again they're only maybe a second or maybe two seconds at the most behind the best the prototypes have got to offer and 
you know, we've not criticized MotoGP and they're, they're doing their own thing and they've made the prototype work, especially as Dawn is now flipping the bill to help their field out. But World Superbikes is now going to be able to stand out on its own merits and have bikes you can actually go into a showroom and buy. That's great. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, 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 there's no downside in that. So, you know, Worlds needs to establish their product and separate it from the world of MotoGP, which is a hard thing to do when it's owned by one umbrella. So with Worlds standing out on its own two feet, and again, these bikes, again, are sensationally fast uh, in their own right as well. I mean, we saw it. Some of, you may see some of the speed track data. Marco Melandri was the fastest man in a straight line, and he was touching 197 miles an hour on a bike you can buy in a showroom right now for 20 grand. I mean, that's 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 decent car money in these days, which is terrifying to say the least but but yeah that's the nature of the game now these world two bikes are incredible machines and surprisingly affordable too uh, ask Brooks, brooks had to put his own team together and you know he asked for thirty thousand pounds on kickstarter to get it going and in in the grand scheme of things in the grand scheme of motorsport 30 grand really isn't all that much so it's certainly not rio harianto money is it no so, not in but, if, if, but if you take jonathan ray's lap time from from super pole and you just it, Plonk that straight into the middle of the MotoGP test that took place at Phillip Island a week prior mm. um, at the same circuit. It would have put Jonathan Ray 13th. Um, so he would have literally beaten just about half of the MotoGP field. Uh, he would have beaten Danilo Petrucci, Joan Zarco, Hector Barbara, Paul Espargaro, Loris Baz, Bradley Smith, Alvaro Bautista, Scott Redding, Sam Lowes, and Carol Abraham. Uh, he'd have beaten all of those riders with his lap time uh, in Super Bowl, and he would have just been a tenth slower than Valentino Rossi was on the Movie Star Yamaha. Um, just to put that into some sort of context as to how quick Matt Kawasaki was on qualifiers in Super Bowl uh, last Saturday. Um, and it kind of gave us that sort of ominous sense of here we go again, Draves, that Kawasaki going to sweep the board again and dominate. And even though Jonathan Ray did go on to win both races, which we'll talk about in a bit, they didn't exactly dominate, did they? There were much more bikes at the front of the field than any of us were expecting. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go out of the way and say this is this is a really, really competitive field because, again, I mentioned we mentioned it earlier, Philip Island seems to have this knack that it seems to balance the playing field a bit. And Chaz Davis on the race one, um, Park Ferme, said himself, everybody tried to get to the front and break away and nobody could do it. Marco Melandri led for significant laps. Tom Sykes led significant laps. He couldn't do it. Jonathan Ray tried and failed. In, in race two, even guys like Xavi Forrest tried and failed. So... This wasn't a track where you could break away. It was a track that was facilitated for close racing, and the race was did a brilliant job of that. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's it's amazing how all these things can change, and yet, despite the fact that it happens, you put bikes around a track for 18 laps, and somehow the one in green comes out on top. But um, it's you're absolutely right. They didn't dominate. Absolutely. I mean, there was essentially three manufacturers at the front that had a chance of winning this race. You had both Ducatis, you had both Kawasaki's, and uh, Alex Lowe's in the Yamaha was absolutely in the front. Now, the real shots at winning this race as well, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit more in further detail. But that, this, is, this is a good sign. Like, Chaz Davis rode Jonathan Ray hard all the way to the line and in both races, and that is an excellent sign. And, you know, it wasn't just him. It was Marco Melandri, who, again, was very impressive too on that second Ducati. So... Yeah, it looks like the Caddy Pace is no fluke. It's not that Davide was inconsistent last year. They legitimately got a decent package underneath him this year, the Panagale. So, who knows? I mean, I hope this holds up in Thailand as well in a couple of weeks' time. 
Um, we'll have to wait and see because I think Thailand will be the true litmus test for the field and see where we are. Because, I mean, last year we saw what happened. It was Sykes, Ray and Davis in a league of their own. Everybody else was fighting for fourth, essentially. But if that was anything to go by, we could be in for a fantastic season because Chaz Davis looks every bit the equal of Jonathan Ray out there on track. Because hmm, if I look at the result of race one, um, there were five manufacturers I made this in the top seven. Um, yeah. We, with Johnny Ray up there, Chaz Davis on the Ducati, Sykes was up there too, then Lowe's on the Yamaha, Cami on the NBA Augusta was only three seconds off winning the thing. Um, and Jordi Torres on the Altea BMW making us all look silly for thinking that BMW may all be the fall guys this year from all so many oh. strong manufacturers Torres, oh. Torres got 7th on the Altea BM um, <laughs> he and Reiterberger made us look silly by getting straight Wales, through Spanish Elvis. Yeah, Reiterberger got straight through to Super Bowl 2 as well um, yep, yep. on the Friday and um, yeah prettier and sort of Honda in, in the end they were the sort of backmarker factories uh, as it happened um but race one was fantastic though, wasn't it, Drake? It had so many different phases to it where, as you say, so many different riders got to the front and tried to almost like a sort of a grand tour stage race in, in mm. sort of the Tour de France or, or the Vuelta or something like that where you only see one guy who'll try and make the break and try and sort of you know make a gap and sort of hold it to the flag and they mm. can never quite do it. And it was the same here where, as you say, we saw um, Jonathan Ray go straight to the front from pole position, try and lead out, couldn't do it. Uh, Tom Sykes then had his turn at the front, couldn't keep it. Um, Alex Lowe's had a spell at the front, got dragged back by Jonathan Ray. He then got passed again by Sykes. Yep. Whilst Ray was being sort of messed up by Alex Lowe's, it looked like Sykes was incredibly, given his record around Philip Island, going to make the break and go and win it with a few laps to go when Ray and Lowe's were battling each other for second. But they pulled him straight back in. And in the end, it ended up with the story that we kind of expected that we were going to have um, out of testing. Jonathan Ray versus Chaz Davies. And... If we look at race one and race two, because they both finished very, very similar fashion, just how good was Jonathan Ray in terms of a race where it was going to be decided by fine, fine margins, by thousandths of a second, but yet so often Jonathan Ray picks the right moment to hit the front and stay there. And I think in both races, at the start of the final lap, Chaz Davis was ahead, yet Jonathan Ray would get in front in the run into turn one on the final lap and hold it to the flag brilliantly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you put the, the two final laps of race one and two side by side, they're almost carbon copies, especially the last 15 seconds to the flag. But Jonathan Ray has just got this added level of almost tactical nous. He knows exactly where he needs to be at the right time in order to in order to win a Grand Prix. And that was like the race one in particular, where he goes around the outside of Chaz Davis into turn one and slams the door in his nose. Mm. And Chaz has not got an answer for him anywhere else on that lap until the final drag race to the line. And Ray, again, has just timed it absolutely to perfection, giving them just enough room to make it to where the finish line is. Again, if the finish lines in both races are 150 yards longer, Chaz probably has a double win and Kawasaki looks a little bit sheepish. Mm. But uh, Jonathan Ray has timed it absolutely to perfection. He's got the he's got the corner exits exactly right. He tried a couple of passes at the MG hairpin at Chaz a couple of times, not making the same mistake he made last year, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, in any case, Chaz tried, couldn't get there. And it was because almost in Jack Miller-esque fashion from his Moto3 days, just didn't give Chaz an inch in, in, entirely on any of those laps. Like the only way Chaz was going to win that race is if he did something really reckless. And I think he's done a lesson from last year regarding that. But in any case, Jonathan just timed his his moments to perfection. Was in the right place at the right time. Made the move stick. And 
I think it was James Whitten that said it on commentary. He's like, he's, he's, there's almost like this extra level of confidence with whatever Jonathan Ray does on track. He just seems a little bit, he seems that much more sure of himself when he's out there compared to the rest of the field. Even in races that were as chaotic as this one, where, you know, that had four or five different leaders. And again, like you say, a race that had multiple stages to it. So Jonathan being one step ahead of the game there, again, just says just what a quality rider he is. Yeah, it's why I bring up the sort of cycling comparison again, because you look at sort of sprint stages of that where the sprinters at the end of the stage, they they, are, they have to pick the right moment to go. They have to leave, leave it until just close enough to the line so they can time their sprint and not get gassed before they get to the line. And mm-hmm. it's similar to that. Jonathan Ray had to pick the right moment to go. If he overtook Chaz Davies a couple of corners earlier, that Ducati was just going to smoke him on the home straight and Chaz Davies would have led around the final lap. But Absolutely. If, and if Jonathan Ray didn't get him passed into turn one, then Chaz would in a position where he could ride defensive for the final lap and keep Johnny behind him. Um, mm-hmm. There's no guarantee that Johnny would have been able to drag past on the run to the finish line either on the final lap. So it was so important that he picked the right moment to go. Um, and Johnny did that brilliantly. Um, it was a British one, two, three, four, five in that first race with Ray the winner from Chaz Davies, Tom Sykes, Alex Lowe's, and Leon Camier. Um, that was your one, two, three, four, five with uh, four different manufacturers in all of that. Um, completing that top five, um, which gave us the first fascinating scenario that we've been expecting, Dre, heading into race two of this mm. semi-reverse grid, uh, where Jonathan Ray was sent back to ninth on the grid with Chaz Davies eighth, Tom Sykes seventh, um, and interestingly, Marco Melandri, who crashed in an accident with Alex Lowe's uh, in race one, starting tenth, because he was the fastest Super Bowl qualifier who didn't make the top nine of race <laughs> one. And we had the likes of Lowe's, Camille, and Forres, who was quick all weekend, on the front row of the grid. And... It's a sort of two-part question here. A, did it make any difference to the racing we saw on the Sunday? And if it didn't, it certainly made a difference into how excited we were ahead of race two, didn't it? Absolutely, because the, the good thing about Philip Island... the battle. Yeah, exactly. The good thing about Philip Island was, was that basically, in a sense, because guys like Xavi Flores, Alex Lowe's and Leon Camille were competitive in their own right, it made the race more interesting because, okay... It's like okay, Jonathan will will get he'll inevitably get through half the field, but is he going to have trouble getting past these you know, maybe second tier of quality riders on bikes that were competitive that weekend? So yeah, I was legitimately asking questions on the grid. Like okay, how how hard a time is Jonathan going to have passing these people? The answer to the question was not much, but in, in any in any sense, yeah, I think it absolutely did help because. You know, we like Savvy Forrest was in control of that race for a good while in that race. He, he was legitimately fast. And I think um, it's a good look for the sport, too. When you look at that starting grid with the red lights on in race two, you've got a Yamaha, an MV Augusta, and a customer Ducati on the front row of the grid. Absolutely. That's not, again, like, this is this is great for the smaller teams. They'll, 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 get, they'll get extended airtime and being at the front of the field. Got to sell those sponsors, and in any case, if if they're having if they're having a good weekend and their pace is on it, the guys that are on the the factory Kawasaki's and Chikatis, they're gonna have a hard time with these guys. As Tom Sykes would go on to prove in race two that he he could not fly through the traffic like Jonathan Ray did, and it's gonna make some of the more elite riders ask questions, and that's not a bad thing at all, given that only four different riders won a race last season and one of them only won once in, in a wet Grand Prix. The only wet Grand Prix, this, well, one of only two wet Grand Prix in the season. So when you add it all up, I can see race two working effectively. Um, again, I hope that this race wasn't a catfish and that Thailand also holds this up because, again, the more competitive the field is, I think the better this rule will work out. 
Um, we don't want to go into a race two thinking, oh, well, Jonathan's just that fast. It doesn't matter where you put him on the grid. He'll still probably end up winning the damn thing. Yeah, there's, but, two, there's two sort of ways of thinking of it, I think, aren't there? There's one that, you know, the circuit... The circuits later on in the calendar, they tend to spread the field out a bit more because you know Philip Island is so harder to follow, you know, so much easier to follow if you like. So, in that sense, yeah, the field's gonna be more spread apart. But also, that means that these guys, by the time they get through to the front of the grid in race two, those front guys may not necessarily be right on their doorstep because the field spreads a little more around those places. They may be a little further ahead um, when they get to the front. Absolutely. The field's still not going to be bunched together uh, in Philip Island because it's very easy to look at the results tray of race mm. two. The guys in first, second, and fourth were exactly the same in race one and two, which seems to suggest that the real the rule changes didn't make a blind bit of difference. It's yeah, I think it's the case of of the journey rather than yeah. the destination here, because again, it, it the, the race did have an effect on a major title contender because as we said, Tom Sykes couldn't fly through the traffic. Sorry, Lewis, but uh, in, in any case. Sure, the guys, this is going to separate the men from the boys, really, because if you're a quality rider like Jonathan Ray or Chaz Davis, it doesn't matter if you start ninth or eighth. You'll still get to the front anyway. So if you're of that higher quality, you'll still win. But hopefully, with this rule, if another guy is competitive and if another guy can hold it together over a weekend, you will see greater variance in results. And again, Sykes finishing sixth in that race and, you know, not being able to get through the traffic like Jonathan did, did open the door for other guys. So, yeah, that's, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I don't see how bad this could possibly have turned out. I mean, like, even in the worst case scenario, you'll still get the exact same result in race one. So you might as well mix it up. Yeah, see you, if you just have something. a bit more fun getting there. Exactly. So, um, so, yeah. so let's talk about a few of the riders sort of individually now that we've covered the actual races themselves. Let's talk about some of the stories that came from it. First of all, the champ, Jonathan Ray. Um, who took both race wins. I mean, if you look at some of the teams and you look at some of the sports, where, when they win championships, they almost take their foot off the gas and get weaker. Read Leicester City uh, in, recent, <laughs> in recent times. Um, Jonathan Ray is completely the opposite, isn't he, Dre? Just as, as much as this guy wins, he just gets stronger. Yeah, I said it on Saturday. It's like, oh, who taught Jonathan Ray how to qualify? Uh-oh. Um, that, 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 that's not good, you people. He, he's assimilating. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those things where Jonathan just seems to be getting stronger and stronger. Like I said, James Whitten said it perfectly on the commentary. He just has this extra level of confidence and just reassurance about him when he rides a bike where you know he's in control even if it doesn't look like he's in control. And it's almost as if when again, he's racing, like, he's racing at 95%. He's still got that 5% to go to if he needs it. Yeah, it's like Valentino Rossi in his primer. He said only one time, I think he ever said that he was on 100% from start to finish. And that was the race, ironically, in Philip Island, where he had the 10-second handicap to get over. Um, so it's, it's like he's always got the extra 5% in his back pocket whenever he needs it. And the, the two final laps in races one and two seem to show that off the most, where in race one, Jonathan Ray put in his fastest lap of the Grand Prix on the final lap. When... It, that just says it all right there. He, he was playing possum. He, he had an extra two temps in his back pocket right when he needed it most. And that is, again, just champion veteran level ability. I mean, me and my brother were watching the race again this morning. We were taking the mick out of that fact. That, oh, oh, Jonathan's toying with him. He's got this. <laughs> like it's, it's, that, it's that veteran's instinct again where he's just got that level of now there. And again, it's not like he's that much more experienced than everybody else. So it's, I mean, him, Chaz, and Tom are all roughly the same sort of age bracket, upper 20s, early 30s. But it's just he's got this extra something on this bike. And... It, 
he's incredible. There is no other way of describing it. He just seems to be getting better and better. And like, there is no straightforward way to beat this man unless you've just got a better bike on the day. Because if, if you haven't got that, he can win any given race on paper. And this was a classic example of that. Like that Kawasaki did not really have an advantage over Ducati this weekend in race trim, and yet he found a way to get it done twice. Mm. Incredible stuff. Incredible <laughs> stuff. And the guy that he beat in both races was Chas Davies, who. Um, Hmm. lost his six-race winning streak uh, that he carried into the season from the end of last season, having won the final three rounds um, with doubles at all three. Um, and he cost he'd won sort of nine of the last ten to close last season. Um, so he's lost that winning streak, Dre, but will he almost still be just as happy coming away from this Phillip Island weekend, given that he's, in his own words, come away from a circuit that he didn't expect Ducati to be particularly strong on, and he's got 40 points and he's only 10 off the lead. You said it in the last sentence. He's got 40 points. That's 20 more than he had this time last year. And that is that's very important. And even though he didn't win a he didn't win it either race and that he finished second place twice, he's only given up 10 points to Jonathan Ray. And Jonathan Ray had to ride at the top of his game to win both of those races. If he gives Chaz Davis an inch on either one, Chaz poaches a win, and that would be, in his eyes, probably a bonus given he's not keen on Philip Island as a racing circuit. So as as our old Motorsport 101 colleague Adam Johnson would say, as a champion, you win on your bad days, not your good ones. And if that was a bad weekend for Chaz and he got 40 points out of it, I don't think he can be too upset heading back home to Wales, um, knowing that he's only given up 10 points. Ducati looked very competitive out there and they've got a good package and that... I think that's I think that's what Ducati needed to hear the most. They have something here, and they, I have no doubt Chaz will probably win at least. I'm probably going to need both hands to count the number of wins he'll get by the end of the year because Ducati, if they're on a track they like, are practically invincible. That that's the way their bike is configured. Um, yeah, Chaz, so, Chaz will still have those days where he's unbeatable, where you know, he'll go off and smoke the field by five or six seconds in a race, and they can't they can't catch him. Um, so as you say and as Johnson rightly says you, you win it on your worst days and if Chaz Davis can make sure that he maximises those points on his worst days rather than crash the bike trying to make it fit um, then then he'll be in a very very good uh, position um, his teammate also looked pretty good didn't he Dre uh, given that he's been out of, sort of top level racing for a year and a half uh, Marco Melandri didn't really look like he'd missed a step did he out qualified Chaz Davis for a start off yeah, I qualified Chaz Davis was unfortunate in race one to make contact with Alex Lowe's and that put him off. Um, but a podium in race two. Marco Melandri's back, ladies and gentlemen. In some ways, he almost never left. Um, I'm glad because I, I, I did call this. I, sh I shot my shot on this one. I thought Marco <laughs> would be right back up the front of it and I was glad to be proven right. I mean, it's not so much the fact he crashed in race one. It was more the, the statement of intent. He led multiple laps of that race with ease and had the 8-10 to 10 bike length advantage that a lot of the guys had in the field. So it proved Marco can run with the best of them. And he was competitive all race long. And yeah, he's absolutely done a very, very good job out there. He's gotten back up to speed really quickly. A brand new team. And he looks like he's going to be all the measure of Chaz Davis. And again, whether that ends up being counterproductive and for Chaz's title campaign in the long run, we'll have to wait and see. But but he's like Marco's going to give him a handful this year. I, I mean, the guy is competitive. He's fast, and he's already, I think, for me, shown more reassurance of himself than Davide Giuliano did last year. I mean, hopefully, again, this will carry on throughout the season. But 
the upside is there with Marco, and we're seeing it right in front of our very eyes. He could very easily win multiple races this year. He always has in World Superbikes, and I didn't have any reason to believe he couldn't come into Ducati and do just that. He's always been an incredible talent. Yes. It's always been the other stuff with Marco that's been yeah. the problem. Yeah, what I kind of like is that he's already sort of, yeah, that little spat with Alex Lowe's after their tangle in race one, so he's already ruffling some feathers, which I don't think can be a bad thing for World Superbikes. So to have someone who's almost playing the panto villain off the track, uh, Mm -hmm. which Marco seems to relish doing. And also, it kind of, it depends whether you consider this championship fight a four-way fight or a two-way fight um, between those two Kawasaki and two factory Ducati riders. Um, Because if you consider it a two, um, then it's almost going to, it might well come down to this season as to, which teammate takes most points off their rivals? Will Sykes take more off Ray or will Melandri take more off Davies um, as this season mm-hmm. goes on? Or is it indeed, as I say, a four-way fight and Melandri and Sykes are good enough to keep, carry a title fight in their own right? They both seem as if they're more than capable of winning races this season. It's a case of whether they can put it together often enough. And right. um, and, right. and, and, and Melandri, as I say, making a very, very good start to the weekend, or to his return, should I say, to World Superbikes by out-qualifying Chaz Davies and finishing third in race two. And we shouldn't underestimate how good a ride that was during race two because he was one of those guys that crashed in race one. So he started behind Jonathan Ray. He started 10th on the grid to come through to third. Yeah, plus seven, 10th to third. A great result for Marco. Again, given that his confidence might have been rattled a little bit by that race one crash, the fact he's gone on from 10th on the grid and was one of those guys that was aggressive enough to carve his way through the field. And again, these weren't weak guys. Eh? This was a very competitive field this weekend. So the fact that Marco was able to climb his way through with relative relative ease and was able to mix it up with the podium runners and, you know, was, was again, competitive on, on both races. Mm. You couldn't you couldn't have asked for much more out of a weekend from Marco. Maybe getting a few points in race one would have been nice. But accidents will happen. It's inevitability of Walton Bikes. Even Chaz has had many an accident too. So, again, a, a good weekend for Marco. Something you can definitely build on for the future. And whether, whether he gives more... I mean, the fact is, he did give Chaz a good race. Especially in race one before the accident. Where he was passing... He had no problem passing Chaz and running in front of him. So... It's going to be very intriguing. I'm not sure how this is going to play out with Ducati or, you know, is is them fighting each other going to hurt ultimately both their title campaigns in the process? So we're going to have to wait and see how that plays out because I think Ray has more of a measure of, of Tom Sykes than, than Chaz does of Marco Melandri, potentially. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But I yeah, think it's very it, intriguing. It is going to be fascinating. And let's, let's talk about Tom Sykes because a curious weekend, really, for, for him in that... He wasn't on pole position, um, so um, yeah, Dre's left a few uh, Must About 101 followers homeless because he tweeted this. He referred to it as the bet the mortgage on Tom Sykes part of the weekend um, on Saturday, um, which in fairness, it normally is and probably normally will be. I'm, I'm pretty certain Sykes will have more poles than the rest put together as the season goes on. Probably. Um, because it was interesting, Dre, because Tom Sykes was asked in part for May after, after Super Pole when he qualified second to Jonathan Ray. He was like a hundredth or two off pole. Um, and I think we all, when we saw him set that lap time, that 29.6, we thought, jeez, no one's going to beat that. Um, yeah, we're going on. And, and Jonathan Ray did. Um, but he was asked by Charlie Hiscott of Eurosport, um, that's unusual, isn't it, for Jonathan Ray to be ahead of you in, in Super Bowl? And, Jonathan, and Tom Sykes' immediate answer was, here, I'm not so sure. Um, which just emphasised that he doesn't particularly <laughs> like Phillip Island or the circuit doesn't suit him in, in it at all. Um, but what about his race performances, Drake? It, it was odd because I thought in race one, he was closer to the win than I ever thought he would be uh, in mm. that first race. With sort of four or five laps to go, he looked like he was going to be the guy that made that crucial break where, where Lowe's and Ray were getting mixed up and they, they dragged him back. 
Um, and then in race two, his pace was actually very, very good. He just got gapped early on. He couldn't make his way through the pack. And he, mm-hmm. by the time he got up to speed, he was gapped. So how do we look back at Tom Sites? Because if you look at his sort of results and you look at the points he's picked up, it almost looks like same old story um, for yeah. Tom Sites. Can't ride around Phillip Island. He's already, um, in terms of championship position, he's 24 points behind Jonathan Ray already. Um, which is a lot. Not as many as last year, but it's still quite a lot of points. Um, but it almost kind of looks to me as if he's slightly slower in Super Bowl, but slightly quicker in races, which in some way might not be a bad thing for him. No, and that's the on the face of it, that's the thing. On paper, it looks like quite a bad weekend for mm. Tom Sykes. I mean, he's, he's given Jonathan Ray a one-race head start, and again, that's probably not what you want to do with Jonathan Ray in the first place. However, he did look competitive, and he did look fast in both races. Again, as you say, he looked like he had a real shot at winning race one, which, again, was not was probably not on the table for Tom Sykes going into the weekend because he just doesn't like it around here. So the fact he was fast... It's a good sign, and you're absolutely right. With five to go, I thought Sykes has probably got this. I mean, because everybody else was tripping over each other, and Sykes had a six-bike length, maybe half-second advantage, and that was critical. But unfortunately, he got pegged back. Um, race two, again, like you say, was caught in traffic, and by the time he got free of it, the gap was just too big to overcome. Um, the field was just too competitive. But in any case, he's quick. Sykes has always been quick. That's not been the issue. The issue is just racking up the results and putting the points together. And again, while it wasn't the best weekend, maybe in Thailand, we saw in Thailand last year, he ran Jonathan Ray incredibly close. One won. of the races of the year. Yeah. Race two last year. One of the races of the year between them. That, I mean, there was it was elbows out, and it was a war between the two Kawasaki's, and they were on equal footing. So, like... Most of the time we saw it last year where Sykes was more than a match with Jonathan throughout the year. It was just Jonathan had that little bit extra that was able to put his nose out in front compared to Sykes a lot of the time. And that's what made the difference. It's not like Sykes was getting blown out every weekend. A lot of the time it was Sykes following him. And that was the problem. I think he just needs to finish in front of Jonathan more often and find a way to start him. Maybe the Super Bowl rules, and maybe race one and the race two rules will help Sykes out in that department, make Jonathan have to work for it a little bit more, because we saw in races like Magni Core, Sykes has still got the overall pace at the front of a field in clear air, where he's a very, very hard man to beat. Yeah, because <laughs> you, know, you know what I was thinking in that race one as well? I mean, this, mm. is, this is so anti-sport, really. It's, it's, it's not what racing should be about, but uh, no. Alex Lowe has very nearly slipstreamed some Tom Sykes to the line in race one to take that podium, and mm. it, it can't have been just me that was thinking after that race one, wouldn't it have been slightly better long, long, long run to, for some sites to let Alex Lowe's have it and have let you know, and all of a sudden you've got Sykes on the pole for race two and Jonathan <laughs> Ray ninth on the grid and then Sykes, and Sykes wouldn't have had that problem in race two of having to fight the way through the grid because that was his big problem and it was our big fear wasn't it for, for Tom Sykes this season is he going to be able to cut his way through the pack in that race two from the third row of the grid in the same way that Ray and Davies did and the early signs weren't good for him no, I was going to say, how much did it kill you to have to admit that? Uh, yeah. On the way, it was like you'd rather give up the podium if it meant six extra grid yeah. spots for race I'm thinking, two. I'm thinking, would it have? Would his points total? Because he got 26 points from the weekend. Yeah. Um, would his points return have been greater had he been fourth in race one and then been on the pole for race two? Probably. Probably, I would say, because again, Sykes is a, is a much better front runner than he is a pack guy, and. Mm. Oh god! Like it's painful to say that Sykes would. I don't think Sykes would ever knowingly give up a podium no. to start a race on pole. Yeah, that's why I say uh, it's it's so anti one yeah. sports about. But it might actually yeah, be better it's, for it's, him. 
it just doesn't seem like something he would do. You know what he's like. He's a he's a he's a born winner. He's a he's a proper Yorkshireman. You know that 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 area breeds winners. If you look at their track and field record, that'll kill you. But um, it's one of those things where like that. It, I I just don't think he's it, it's in him competitively to think like that. Whereas like you know, ooh, let me still then let Alex Lowe's have this podium so I can start race two from pole. He's not that sort of dude. He's on the best bike in the field. He's a he's a former world champion. He's gonna he's gonna have every confidence in his own ability to be able to get to the front and roll with it. But um, yeah, it's 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 amazing. I do actually think he probably would have had maybe four or five more points in the long run if he'd actually sacrificed the podium and then started race two from pole. Maths, it's it's, it's it's a bastard, unfortunately. Yeah. Sometimes there's, there's, certainly, there's certainly no question, though, Dre, that if if this is going to become a theme throughout the season, he's going to have to become, he's going to have to find a way. He needs to be slightly more decisive and, and ruthless in those first few laps. Because Marco Melandri started even behind Jonathan Ray and got through to the front and got through to a podium. The guys from eighth, ninth, tenth on the grid ended up on the podium. Tom Sykes went from seventh to sixth. Not good enough. It's just not good enough because. It, like Ray Davies, even Melandry have pr- just proved they have no problem carving for a field. Jonathan Ray was fourth by lap three. Like, that's how much he was able to carve through the field. I'm pretty sure Sykes was still back in eighth, ninth at that point. Exactly. And Jonathan was. Jonathan knew what the mission was get through these dudes as quickly as possible. Because if I let. Actually, these that's, that's even free. worse than it sounds because Torres wasn't on the grid because he got pushed off the dummy grid. Yeah, because Torres was going to start that race in fourth place. Unfortunately, his his bike had electrical problems and he could not take the start. So, yeah, effectively, it was one less bike for the guys to overtake. And it was only one position that Tom Sykes gained. Um, and a lot of that, you could, you could argue, was by default because there was one less person on the grid spot in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a good look for Tom, unfortunately, because, again, Jonathan knew what he had to do, get through the field as fast as possible. Because if he knew, mm-hmm. if Xavi Flores or, or Alex Lowe's or Leon Camier takes off here, there's no chance of winning this race. And he was able to peg that gap in really quickly, and that was the key to him winning race two. Um, but... Yeah, it's not a good look for Sykes, who just seems to struggle in pack racing, which is a problem because if the field is more competitive, how many times is this going to happen? Mm, yeah, it's a big worry for him. And and for those that are wondering, perhaps that are new to this show, that have followed most about 101, that don't follow Bike Life, and are wondering why does Tom Sykes always struggle around Philip Island? Why is he never quick there? Um, mm. the, the main reason, I suppose, is that he's his style lends itself to sort of t- going through corners in a V-shape. I think Greg Haynes made this analogy a couple of weeks ago when he joined us, in that Sykes likes to go hard in on the brakes into a corner and then fast out um, of corners, which Philip Island doesn't really lend itself to that kind of riding because there are very few big stops around Phillip Island. There's only the Honda Hairpin, um, really, which has a big stop. MG's a very uh, slow corner as well, but it's not so much a big stop. You're still scrubbing off speed as you go over that over that crest over Lukey Heights. Um, yeah. So there aren't really many corners where Sykes' strengths um, really come to the fore, um, whereas Jonathan Ray's strengths, just, you know, Phillip Island really lends itself to his kind of style, um, which is why you'll see Tom Sykes much stronger at other circuits, particularly Donington. Um, it's as if that circuit was just designed for him. Um, yeah, he's so funny. good around there. Um, so it just seems as if it's a style thing that Sykes just, his style just does not suit the place, um, mm. which is amazing given that it's a circuit that's just talks about every motorcycle racer loves riding around. Um, but Tom Sykes just can't make it work around there. Um, a guy who did make it work, though, Dre, was Alex Lowe who, um, if Bex, who's obviously not with us on the show, she'll certainly be listening if she is. This is the point you've been looking forward to, Bex, um, where we <laughs> lavish praise on your boy, who was surely, Dre, the rider of the weekend. Through gritted teeth. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I can't argue with that. Um, Alex Lowe's was excellent this weekend. Had a very real chance of winning that first race. Was solid again in race two with the help of a with the, with the reverse grid rule, obviously. But in any case, two top five finishes. The Yamaha, the Pat Yamaha team looked very happy with that as he was being wheeled back into the garage on race two. There was firm handshakes all round from the Japanese developers of the team. There, the bosses were there in full attendance. They obviously seemed to be very happy with with, with Lowe's performance, and that was the most competitive that Yamaha has looked maybe since they've come back as a full yeah. factory team. Yeah, I mean, you can look at the start of the final lap in both races, and at both occasions we were sat there thinking. Alex Lowe's has a real shot of winning this. Not to mention those had a couple of absolutely ridiculous overtakes in mm. both of those races, including the, the double at the hairpin um, in, in Sector 2 there, where he was able to pass Davis and Ray in one fell swoop. But just, uh, the man is mad opportunistic. He's a crazy dude when he wants to be Alex Lowe's, yeah. but he's got, that, again, just that ridiculous level of confidence in himself when he's motivated and he just goes for gaps that you would never think would exist. It's that... Andrea Iannone level of crazy that I can admire yet sometimes um, completely destroy and hate. But um, Lowe's is, is, is like this is the best I've seen Lowe's in, in World Superbikes probably ever. So the fact he's up there and, and you know, hopefully Yamaha is able to continue their good form going forward into, you know, in, into later rounds like Thailand and rounds where they've struggled before, like Imola, for example. Hopefully they'll be able to keep this going because they're not going to want eighth ninth place finishes all out the year they're going to want podiums and i think they said it themselves the yamaha want to challenge for wins this year they've lowered their expectations they said you know what we're not thinking about titles we're thinking about podiums and, and challenging for the occasional win and if lowe's continues that run of form they will do just that i'm, I'm dead certain on this yeah he looks he looked very very good he looked like a much more mature alex lowe's at the weekend rather than the kind of rider that We've mm-hmm. seen so often, similar to his brother, who would sometimes crash his brains out trying to win a race, even though it probably wasn't on the table. Um, mm. Just take the summons to what Chaz did. Just take the points that are on offer. Take the maximum that's on offer on that given day. Um, and when your day comes where you're on the bike and you're in the position where the win is there, go and grab it. Um, and, and like I say, we, we were genuinely sat there with a lap to go of both races thinking, Alex Lowe's has a he has a half decent shot at this uh, mm. on the final lap, and he, he finished within a second of the winner uh, in both races, and he was just a, a photo finish away from a podium in race one, uh, as we mentioned a moment ago with Sykes. So um, the best that Alex Lowe's has looked in in World Superbikes, and the best that I think Yamaha have looked as well. You're right um, since they returned, and and someone could totally sort of mentioned on the Saturday night coverage about the fact that you know he was on the podium with them last year in Qatar at the end of the season, but it wasn't exactly a competitive third if you like he certainly wasn't anywhere near right. two guys ahead of him um but alex lowe's genuinely looked like a front-running contender who belonged there um in phillip island mm. and if you compare that to this time last year where they were sort of just on the tail of that leading group and falling away it does look as if yamaha have made some real progress um just a quick note by the way condolences to sylvan gintoli and his family um again if you follow him on twitter you'll hear the news that his wife had a miscarriage a couple of days ago so um our thoughts and prayers go to the gintoli family on a side note there i know he was on tv for race one but wasn't for race two for obvious reasons but um again just to double down on that um condolences to sylvan and the family that's obviously just horrendous news um but i think yeah i think Sylvan made a half-hearted. It was like it was it was a half-hearted sort of jab at his, his former employees. Maybe it was a bit of saltiness there, um, because yeah, you're right. He did get that podium last season, but at the same time, it wasn't a competitive one. And I think that's the difference. I think the difference here is that 
as you said, on, on, on both occasions, they were just a second away from the win. And that is exactly where Yamaha needs to be. Um, like, it's not like last year, like Gintoli finished third in a race and it was like, oh, well, maybe they could have won on another day. And no, they were 20 seconds down the road. And that's not where they want to be. You're never going to win races when you're that far back. You've got to think about overall speed a little bit more than position. It's not just position in this case. It's a little bit more to it than that. It doesn't tell the full story. And in this case, Alex Lowe's was right there, challenging for the win, led on multiple occasions, was right up there and competing. Well, that's where Yamaha needs to be. And that is the the big difference between last year with Gintoli getting the occasional podium and Yamaha looking good in the first round and then dropping off like a stone halfway through the season. And this year where Lowe's looked racy and looked competitive and looked like he could actually have won both races at a certain point. Um, that'll be the difference maker. And if he keeps finishing fourth and, you know, starting those race two poles or starting on the front row in races in race two, so there's no reason why Yamaha can't score more podiums or even the occasional win. And there's, there's hope. And that is the most important thing out of that camp. Absolutely. And, uh, and just to yeah. check out, I'll just check back the result actually from race one from last year in Qatar. Someone could tell you was 10.4 seconds off the winner in third place. Um, mm. So, yeah, he was third, but he wasn't exactly anywhere near second in that. Um, so that just to put that into perspective, they have certainly were stronger um, this weekend. Um, a couple of other manufacturers though who weren't Dre, who we were slightly surprised with, um, because if we're talking about the stars of the weekend, um, the disappointments of the weekend, Red Bull Honda perhaps more expected, but where were the Milwaukee Aprilias? Hmm, that was a very concerning one because again, it's not like Aprilia have had a bad run of form. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago where they had. A really nice-looking team with Leon Haslam and Jordi Torres. They won multiple races that season. Haslam was competitive on several occasions. And it looked like, hey, Aprilia has got something here. And it's not really worked out. I mean, is the Milwaukee name starting to ruin everything it touches now? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it's a curse of some kind. But Laverty looked a little bit stronger in race two before the accident. and it just Before we talk about anything else, Eugene Laverty didn't even make it out of Super Bowl one. No, and that that was that was the thing we pointed out was the big surprise in Super Bowl was that they, they couldn't get into Super Bowl two lousy. Like the overall pace was not there. They could not put it together for a single lap. And that was a big surprise to me. And this is this is no small team. This is a big name like Milwaukee chipping in with a big factory like Aprilia. I expected better from both him and Savadori this weekend, and they were both equally disappointing this time around. So maybe Aprilia wasn't quite as locked in as they were thought. Race two, where Laverty ran in the top eight for you know multiple laps, was a little bit more reassuring. But I expected more from Aprilia this time around. Maybe they'll be the Yamaha for this year. Where you think, oh, we think the more. <laughs> Yeah, they turn out to be a bit disappointing. Yeah, it, it was it was race two that worried me actually. If I if I was Eugene Lamity, because of course he was one of the guys that benefited from the the new grid rules, where he was thirteenth on the grid for race one, got himself into that top nine, and was promoted to fifth, I think it was, on the grid um, yeah. for race two, which became fourth when Jody Torres disappeared. Yeah, um, and was in the leading group. I think he actually led halfway around the first lap. Um, mm -hmm. Eugene Laverty. Um he faded to finish tenth behind his teammate Salvador, who started I think fourteenth on the grid. Um, and Eugene Laverty ended up over 20 seconds off the winner, um, given that he ran in the front of the leading group and started ahead of the winner. Um, so that really worried me that, that Laverty, I mean, they both got in the top 10, both Milwaukee bikes, um, mm -hmm. but the fact that he finished so far back from having started up the front, it would have been a big worry. I think he did say on the grid that they had sort of 
throwing a bit of a double six with their setup, given that um, they'd got to race one of the belts, so they've made a few tweaks to set up, and perhaps they didn't work, so that might be why it went so wrong for them. Mm. Um, but uh, the weekend went kind of even more pear-shaped if you're Red Bull Honda, um, who had the first outing with the new Fireblade. A much worse weekend than a Priya had, Dre, but was this slightly more expected? It was. I mean, again, Greg did such a great job of explaining two weeks ago that, yeah, the hot, they'd only just got the Honda in the... Sh- like. It's like the Honda factory has let down their own factory team in the race in the sense that they only just got the Fireblade to them at the absolute last minute. And Tenkate have done pretty much nothing but strip them down and make sure they're race ready. They've had no extended testing with the bike to get any sort of feel for what it can or can't do. And it was a real struggle for them right from the get-go. Again, sort of to be expected given, given you know, their the, the, the previous history with, with what's gone on um in the months prior but uh, it's it's still disappointing i mean stefan bradle finishing 15th in both races is not what they were hoping for at all i mean they've got the big red bull name behind them now i mean i'm sure i'm sure are expecting big things this season out of hayden and bradle you know two four you know two former world champions in the same team and just it's just it was just ugly i mean hayden crashed in race two and bradle was uncompetitive and it, it, it was a baptism of fire for the Hondas this time around. And again, it was kind of expected given their, their track record going into this race, but it, it, it kind of showed just how far behind they are compared to the field. And if this was Phillip Island... Yeah, Phillip Island's track- circuit, which is supposed to mask the problems they're having. Exactly. If this is a track which is known for bringing people together, that must that might be a really bad sign if they're this far off the pace on a more competitive circuit, time they could easily get smoked, and that's and that's not a good sign at all. No, it's a big worry, given that they were on pole there last year, Honda, with, with Vandermark in, in Thailand, uh, with the old bike. So, yeah, they, they it's going to get worse for it. It's going to get better, I think, um, for that team. And as you right. mentioned, Hayden with the crash in race two, Brackle 15th in both races. Um, and uh, in, in a couple of those two couple of races, there were very few finishers beyond the 15 who scored points. Yes. Um, so Stefan Bradle very much towards the back on his World Superbike debut. And, and as I say, I think it's going to get worse before it's going to get better for them. Um, two other riders that we must mention before we move on to the other race that certainly captivated us over the course of the weekend. Um, and the two riders that we saw on the front row in race two didn't quite convert into podium finishes, but... Chami Forres and Leon Camier both having standout performances. Camier in race one, Dre, and Forres in race two, showing that even though the stronger manufacturer support and presence in World Superbikes for this season, the privateers in Forres and the smallest factory in Camier are still punching their way, aren't they? Good bikes are good bikes, regardless of whether they're getting support from the factory or not. And it's in Ducati's best interest to get Xavi up there because the kid is fast. And he's done a lot of miles on for the MotoGP team as well in practice. If you forget, he's filled in for them before on occasions to deal with the, the injuries. Like, like, Ducati clearly believe in this kid. And he's got some speed. And again, like you said it on Twitter at the time. Like, What did he have, in the brec- what did he have for breakfast? Because he was fast all weekend. This was no fluke. Um, he was running top five pace all weekend long, and he was justly rewarded with two solid results in the end in the top eight. And yeah, like the kid looked very fast. And as for Camille, well, we know the man works miracles. But to, again, to finish in the top five in that MV Augusta is another sensational result for Cami. I mean, the ambulance chaser really has all grown up and he's matured into a damn fine rider. And he's doing the Lord's work on that MV Augusta yet again. And for a, for a factory that is just so small and just is not going to have the capability to catch up with the big boys, the fact that the camera is still able to get something out of it 
anything out of it at all, let alone top six finishes and top five finishes in there, is tremendous work and a testament to his, his, his work rate and as well just just his overall ability great stuff from both guys this weekend yeah that was almost one of my favorite parts of race one and like i say that had so many phases to it where we had different guys leading at the front that point sort of two-thirds of the way into the race where i was watching thinking is that Leon Camier joining in with this? Like, yes. is, is that Camier joining the back of the leading train as well? The love train, as Tom Sykes called it after Super Bowl 1, where he says, I want to be in the love train uh, in race 1. And Leon Camier ended up joining it towards <laughs> the end of that race. What a race it was. What a weekend in World Superbikes, which led with the same winner as usual. Jonathan Ray taking a double. 50 points out of 50 for him. He leads the championship by 10 from Chaz Davies. Tom Sykes is third in the points. Um, he trails by 24. He's level with Alex Lowe's, who had two fourths, which is why he has 26 points. Sykes ahead of him by virtue of having that race one podium. Uh, Chavi Forres is fifth on 21. Then comes Camia in sixth. Uh, Marco Melandri, who only scored in one of the two races, is seventh on 16. Ahead of Vandermark, who had a quiet start to life at Yamaha. He's eighth in the points ahead of Eugene Laverty and Jordi Torres. Uh, the manufacturers... Uh, is led by Kawasaki. Only one rider per manufacturer scores points, incidentally, in World Superbikes. The first rider home for each factory. So Johnny Ray's 50 points put Kawasaki top ahead of Ducati's 40. Yamaha's 26. MV Augusta, who only have one rider, so you know where their points are coming from, are fourth on 19. Aprilia have 15. Uh, it was Laverty that scored their points in race one. Savadori in race two. BMW are sixth on 12. Of course, Reiterberger scored their race two points because Torres didn't start it. And Honda are bottom on six points in seventh place. That very, wasn't the very rough start to them. Um, now, on to the other uh, race that we saw this weekend. And, um, yeah, side note, about a month or two back, I was in a pub in Leeds and uh, a riot broke out in the pub. Um, pool cues and chairs were flying all over the place. Really? Now, on, on Saturday night, I saw something very, very similar, except trade the pool cues and stools for motorbikes. It was called the World Supersport Race <laughs> at Phillip Island. Was that just the most fun 10 laps you've ever seen, Dre? I want to know more about this par fight. Yeah, um, it seems really fun. Like, like what part of the Leeds did you grow up in? But um, yeah, in, in any case, my God, that was a that was a ten lap punch up with two dudes beating the absolutely bejesus out of each other. It was a tremendous race. Um, don't 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 let it fool you. I mean, yeah, we know Super Sports is kind of taking a bit of a hit this year with. Keenan out for the first couple of rounds, and we you know we'll get to the dynamics of that in a minute. But in any case, oh boy, what an absolute thriller that was! Just a tremendous race from everybody involved, and absolute top quality billing. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And yeah, just to set the scene of how this played out, it was meant to be, I think, a sort of sixty. No, I think it was about a twenty lap race. It was supposed to be. It then got shortened to sixteen. I think it was. Um, given the fact that they had fears over tyre duration, given that Philip ah. Island is notoriously tough on tyres. Um, mm -hmm. So they shortened the race. PJ Jacobson was going to be on pole for this. Um, he then made a complete mess of it early on. He had electrical problems and dropped effectively to the back of the field. We then had a major crash coming over, coming around Siberia where uh, Robin Mulhauser looped his, his Honda. Gino Ria rode into it. Um, somehow managed not to get hit himself by the bike. His um, front screen hit the bike, thankfully. Uh, otherwise, we could have had a serious problem on our hands. That brought mm. out the red flags because debris and gravel was everywhere, which meant yep. that because we had to go to two-thirds of the original distance, we then had a 10-lap dash for the cash um, for the opening round of the World Super Sports season. We had guys like Alex Baldellini, who I tweeted at the time was here for a punch-up because he was basically throwing dive bombs left and right 
A, yep. tweet, a tweet which um, entertainingly both Baldolini and his team later liked and retweeted on Twitter, uh, even though I didn't even tag him in the tweet. So someone's searching his name on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that was fun. Um, and we had the likes of um, Jules Cluzel, who started on the front row and was, again, throwing dive bombs left and right. Jacobson, again in race, in the second part of the race after the red flag, dropped way down the field after trying to take Carl Ride out, and they both went wide. He then came back to finish sixth. At the end of all of this, um, with the final lap to go, we had, I think it was around six bikes in this leading group. Um, Federico Caracasulo was one of them on the Yamaha. He then dive-bombed Cluzel at the MG Hairpin, three corners from home, took them both out, sent Cluzel on an ejector seat crash, um, oh, which left him limping away. Um, and that then split the leading group into two, two groups of two. And the two at the front, Dre, Robbie Rolfo and Luca Mahias. Um, Rolfo on a customer MV Augusta, Mahias on the factory Yamaha R6. Um, and what a race it was. Until the post-race penalty, which we'll come into a second, we had the closest ever World Supersport finish. Uh, Kyle Smith and Keenan Sofoglu's record set in Qatar last year had lasted all of one race. Um, yep. Because we initially thought we had a dead heat until a photo finish managed to split them by one thousandth of a second in oh, favour of Rolfo. <laughs> at this point, as I said, at this point, sod the, like I was complaining. Was like, okay, because like I thought it was going to be a dead heat. It looked like you couldn't split them, which in that case breaks out this tiebreaker, which I've always hated. The the rule of whoever set the fastest lap gets credit for the win, which is not how this should work. I said, hey. Have them split a podium. They can share the trophy. You both get twenty-two and a half points and have done with it. But no, like they had like, again. They found the photo. They gave the very particular angle that had uh, Wolf win by a thousandth of a second. And ish, God, it was one of the closest finishes I've ever seen in anything. Um, in an, an unbelievable race, an unbelievable finish, and again, just a complete punch-up of a motorcycle race. Mm. Uh, and um, I'm surprised there wasn't pool tape, like pool cues being broken in the in Park Ferme, given how ridiculous it was. But we somehow got through that just about in one piece. Yeah, just about because it, it, that could have been much worse, couldn't it, Dre? What happened on the run to the flag? Where, in fairness, I don't know so sure either rider was particularly at fault for this. In that no. Rolfo was weaving around trying to break the slipstream of the guy behind him. Mahias was alongside him, um, yeah. and then of course because they're both sort of weaving, and you know it's. It's not exactly um, the most sort of safe of scenarios where two bikes are weaving at over 150 miles an hour. The right. two sort of ended up sort of glancing at each other. That put Rolfo on the sorry, put yeah, put Rolfo on the grass. Mahias was then apologising um, for nearly putting Rolfo on the grass. The guy who eventually got credited with the win. And given that, like I say, we're not talking about a part of the circuit where bikes are meant to crash. That could have been an awful lot worse. That could have been a horrendous accident. Again, we, like like again, it was it was similar to the World Superbike races where Chaz Davis had to pull out of the slipstream at the last possible second before the line. Try, I was like, how late do you want to leave this to try and make a last minute dash for the line here? And yeah, I mean, again, you have your right to weave. I mean, it's the last it's the last straight before the finish line. I mean, who cares at this point? I mean, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna try and desperately hold off the win. Any any smart person would. But yeah, it could have been an almighty accident. I mean. No one's telling you you got to hold your line, but uh, yeah, let, let's 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 praise Jesus that that couldn't have been an awful, awful 160 mile an hour sort of accident. 
between the two of them there. But uh, luckily, you know, again, only pride was dented in that accident, fortunately. Yeah, thankfully, thankfully we got away with it. And uh, and the winner in the end, as I say, by 0.001 seconds, or it ended up being 1.001 seconds because Mahias was given a one-second penalty post-race <laughs> for what happened, um, um, which affected him not a jot, and the result he still finished second. Um, but for Robbie Rolfo, what a story. Um, for Robbie Rolfo, the race, the race winner, who started his world championship level career in the same year as Valentino Rossi um he debuted in 125s in 1996 um did Rolfo um hasn't won a world championship level race since the 2010 Malaysian Moto 2 Grand Prix and that was the season where just about everybody won um at one stage in that first inaugural Moto 2 season um and had never won a world Supersport race he now leads the championship as you do. Uh, I feel old just thinking about that. And I'm like, I think I'm, what, two and a half years younger than you, Lewis? <laughs> and I feel old thinking about that. My brother was born in January 1998. And I thought that was bad. Um, yeah, Robbie Rolfo. Like I, like, I hadn't heard his name for a couple of years. So when I was watching that, I was thinking, wait, that can't be. It's that Robbie Rolfo. Wait a goddamn minute. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the hell is he doing here? And how the hell is he leading? What do you mean he's just won the race? Um, it's 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 Tony Elias 2006 all over again. We just go just just back the truck up. And at this point, like the man's won a race again for the first time in what seven years, nearly. Yeah. Um, the just, guy turns 37 in a couple of weeks. For God's sake, <laughs> make it stop! Like I'm I'm glad that uh, that uh, World Super Sport is opening up doors for the elderly. I, I'm I'm delighted to hear that they're giving opportunities to people like him. Max Biaggi, Carlos Checa, you name it. Uh, we're, we're giving riders one last chance to experience what it's like to win Grand Prix and stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, incredible stuff from Robbie Rolfo. And a very nice story to hear his name circulated again in, in a positive light. And uh, again, a, a tremendous performance and a great win for Robbie Rolfo. The, the veteran experience coming into play there quite nicely. Mm, you, you missed one off that list as well. The name of Anthony West, um, because he, he he put together a very similar sort of wildcard effort to Josh Brooks in World Superbikes. Mm. Um, that's our last minute deal to get himself on the super sport grid had a nightmare in super pole where his bike wouldn't work so he ended up 21st on the grid and through all the chaos and the two-part race he got through to third absolutely again like there's only two ways to get a good anthony west one sprinkle the track with water or two put it in australia and see (laughs) what happens and this was the latter of those occasions and anthony west did a superb job the man can still ride a bike make make no mistake of that and again it it was a last minute deal he had to get to resort to crowdfunding methods to try and get on the grid like brooks did and i'm glad he made it because again it was a superb performance and hopefully that's put his name in the advertising window for a couple of guys to take him on for a full season because the guy's a great character to have and hey if you're going to some more wet tracks over the course of the calendar and it starts raining hey yeah, you know he's, he's your go-to guy uh, <laughs> West. Um, in, in terms of the rest of that leading group which as I say was sort of splintered by what happened on the final lap with Caracasulo and Cluzel um, who we'll come on to short, shortly um, the, the young whippersnapper in that leading group by the name of Kyle Ride um, hey. who, um, who's started the weekend slowly has to be said um, can't have been easy for him first of all Dre given that his teammate the guy who was expected to be his team leader and almost mentor Keenan Safoglu wasn't there through injury so straight away Carl Ryde's almost charged with the task of leading the team that are defending champions in this class 
Um, so that can't have been easy for him. Um, but what a good weekend he ended up having. Qualified fourth on the grid, having come through Super Bowl 1. And then ran well in the leading group. Looked like he was a genuine podium contender. And got taken, almost taken out twice. Jacobson, when he had his incident, which sent him towards the back of the grid, nearly wiped him out down at the MG hairpin. Then Cluzelne very nearly did the same a few laps later. And he still came through to fourth. Tremendous job from Carl Wright. I mean, he's still such a young guy and still relatively inexperienced in this field, and especially a field of this quality. But the kid's What a mature fearless. head, though. Yeah, like the kid, the, you would never guess by looking at him for the first time. The kid is, 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 is sensational. And what a talent. And again, he's completely fearless. And that's what I love about him. Like, like you, you can throw all sorts of situations. And then again, it's, again, it's his team leader not being there. Again, you had no problem taking him on in Qatar last year. And... Uh, again, producing that incredible finish. The kid is absolutely fearless. He's, he has no problem running in a leading group at all. And despite adversity, he's coming through and having fantastic results in this fourth place. It it looks like Carl Ride is here to stay, and I hope he. I really hope he is because that was a that was a that was a journeyman like performance from Carl Ride. And he's still only what 18, 19 years old. My gosh, what a talent! Yeah, what a <laughs> talent. We're looking forward to seeing how he develops as the season goes on. And as I say, he's in a very very good team. Um, to develop there. So the kids, Pachetti Kawasaki, who are the absolute class. They're almost like Red Bull KTM IO to Moto3, yes. is what they are to World Supersport. They're such a good team. Um, and when he gets to Foglu back alongside him as well, there's so much he can learn from a rider like that, the best rider the World Supersport has ever seen. Um, it's, it's a bit early to be talking in championship terms, Dre, but the World Supersport season is a short one. It doesn't race twice per weekend, it only races once. It doesn't go to Laguna Seca, so it's a 12 round season. Um, so we're already one race down and of course in terms of the championship the big story was Safwaglu being out injured for this opening round of the championship he wasn't in Australia he won't be in Thailand given that he broke his thumb in pre-season testing which left PJ Jacobson and Jules Clouzel his two likeliest challengers with a guilt-edged opportunity to make up some early ground and to get a bit of a head start on him whilst he's injured Jacobson put it on the pole and set the fastest lap on the final lap having dropped down the field and Clouzel of course had his adventures over the course of the race having qualified second. So if we're looking back on this weekend, Dre, and that guilt-edged opportunity that Jacobson and Cluzel had, without putting too fine a point on it, they both blew it. Open goal. And they missed an open goal on this one. I mean, again, not really Cluzel's fault on this one. His was more just a case of bad luck. Jacobson's going to be kicking himself on this one. He he, he can win any given race on paper, especially with Keenan not in it. And sixth place is not what you think he needs to beat Keenan in a championship in the long run because we know he's the class of the field. You know Keenan's going to be competitive in, in every given race out there and twice on Sundays. But it's one of those situations where when you've got no Keenan for two rounds and you've got a golden chance to take massive points out of him um, in a 12-race calendar, which makes it even more important, Sif is not really that great. I mean, that's that's more than doable for Keenan. He's only lost a dozen or so points to, to PJ Jacobson like that. So disappointing weekend for Jacobson, given the circumstances and given that, again, this was, I think, a huge opportunity for him to do some real damage to Keenan's chances of a sixth title. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a dreadful weekend really for them. As I say, Jacobson only taking 10 points, which is you know a couple of wins with Jacobson in second, and those points are gone. And Cluzel ended up with a motorcycle up his bottom and, and no points um, mm-hmm. at the end of the weekend. And 
just to go through the result, Robbie Rolfo, the winner, um, with 25 points. So he's not exactly going to be a championship contender, you wouldn't have thought. But he's got 25 points on the board and a first Super Sport win. Uh, Mahia second on 20. Then Anthony West in third on 16. Carl Ride, who I slowly start to believe he might figure in this championship fight yet. He's on 13. Uh, Nicky Tooley, who was almost nowhere for all the weekend, finished fifth. Um, he's the guy that was second on a couple of sort of wildcard appearances on a Yamaha last season. He's doing the full campaign this year. Uh, he's on 11. Then Jacobson on 10. Aiden Wagner, who was the first Honda home um, in 7th um, on the Honda CBR 600. He's 7th. He's on 9 points. Then Kazuki Watanabe on 8. Nasho Calero, that was a career best in 9th. He has 7 points. And Lachlan Epis, who's another of the Aussies, he finished 10th. He has 6 points. There weren't even enough finishes to round out the points. It was that oh, crazy. Oh, right, only 14 finishes from the 24 or so that started. Manufacturers Championship is led by Envy Augusta, courtesy of one of their customer teams and Rolfo's victory. Uh, Yamaha's factory rider Mahias took second, so they're second on 20. Then come Kawasaki with 13 in third, courtesy of Kyle Ride and Honda. Much like in World Superbikes, they're bottom in World SSP as well uh, mm -hmm. on 9 points. That brings us to the end then of our World Superbike Weekend and we'll be back on this show in a couple of weeks to review the second round in Thailand. So let's do the news then, and let's look at uh, MotoGP testing news, because we're going to talk about testing in a little bit. But there's some news that has broken from the private test over the course of the weekend, Dre, and it surrounds our world champion, Mark Marquez, who um, seems to have uh, an affinity and a knack of dislocating his shoulder quite a bit. He's done it again at Jerez. Oh, good. Um, of all the talents to have, you know, being one of the finest black riders the world has ever seen, uh, you can also pop your shoulder out at will. Who knew? Yes. And, and, uh, and not seem to slow down at all as a result no, of it. No, no. Like for him, it's no big deal. It's like, ah, okay, okay, just, just yank it back in. Just yank my arm really hard. It'll pop back in. We'll be, we'll, we'll be back out of there in no problem. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy how he keeps doing this. And I think it was David Emmett that made a very good point. Like, hang on. He's, he's probably going to have to get surgery on this at some point, right? And it's like, well... Doesn't seem to bother him so much, and you know, I think that's just part of his riding style, where the lean angle and all that, and his body's hanging off the bike half the time. He's gonna pop his shoulder out a lot more often because it's a critical part of how he rides the bike. But given he's so flexible and he's effectively made of rubber, I don't think it really bothers him at this point. It's very weird, but mm. yeah, doesn't seem, doesn't seem to really bother him in the slightest, which is kind of disturbing to say the least. Yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> motorcycle races they don't get anywhere if they can't ride through pain. Uh, no. Mark Marquez seems to be as good as that as anyone. Another rider that's going to have to do that coming up shortly is Hector Barbara, because he's broken his collarbone in a training accident at Valencia. And this is much more of a bigger deal for him, Dre, because a broken collarbone is going to take a lot longer to recover from, and he's only got three weeks to Qatar. But he's got a whole day. I mean, ask Jorge Lorenzo. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. But uh, yeah, a, a collarbone is a lot more significant. That's good. That's normally, that's normally you're on the shelf for a month, basically. Um... Again, I hope it doesn't affect him too bad because, again, Qatar's three weeks away and, again, he doesn't want to miss an actual championship round. He's probably certainly going to miss the Qatar test next week, which is a shame. But, uh, yeah, more has to be done. And, again, it's a, it's a nasty injury uh, for Hector Barber, who, again, had a real breakout season last year. Again, it's a shame he's going to miss out on that because, again, he's in a really nice spot with that GP16 there this year as well. 
So um, he needed all the time in the world with that, and he just didn't quite get it this time around. Mm. Yeah, and the other the other big news that's broken this week, which surrounds the MotoGP panic, it comes from Moto3. Um, and this is an interesting one, this. The launch of the British talent team, um, mm-hmm. which is its official title. That is the actual name of the team, um, which gives you a pretty clear idea of what its purpose is um, in Moto3. They'll be running John McPhee this season with a Honda. Um, and b- before we come on to the team itself and indeed the British Talent Cup, which is going to sprout from it um, in 2018, um, let's just quickly talk John McPhee, Dre, because sure. um, we may not have a chance to mention we'll do our sort of MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3 preview on this show in a couple of weeks. Um, but So we may not have time necessarily to mention McPhee and all that, so we'll talk about him now. And the fact that it amazed me when I looked at John McPhee and his, his information of how old he is. He's the same age as Maverick Vinales, um, is John McPhee. Um, So if we're looking at him this season, he's got rid of that god-awful Peugeot slash Mahindra that hampered him for so long of last season, even though he won a race on it um, towards the end of the year. Um, He's got to do some winning this season, hasn't he? He's got a Honda with him. He's got a team that is built virtually around him. Mm -hmm. This is a big year for him, isn't it? If he's going to amount to anything in in a Moto2 or a MotoGP capacity, he's got to do something this year. This is the make-or-break year for him, I would argue. Um, this, this is what I think is his, his fourth season in Moto3 oh, no, now. It, well, he, he debuted 2011. Obviously, he was, that was as a wild card. Um, but, he, yeah, he's been, he's been a regular rider for a good four or five years now. Yeah, this is it. Like, like He's got an entire team built around. He's going to be the face of the British Talent Cup. He's going to be the one of the. He's going to be the biggest British face of the of the class in in Moto Three, according to the totally unbiased broadcasters that are BT Sports. Yes, he's effectively um, riding for the British national team. Yeah, like I mean, this is it exactly. Like he is the representation of an entire country. No pressure or anything, John. Um, he's run at the front before. I mean, when he was alongside Efren Vasquez mm. um, at, at the RTG Termini team, he was competitive in that team, and he was. He was up there challenging for wins on several occasions. The talent is there with McPhee. That that is that's never been an issue. It's, it's, it's the fact that can he put it together over an entire season? And I hope he can because this is this is a big deal. This is you're you're, you're the face of an entire talent system. Um, like you're the best our country's got apparently, John. So um, don't screw this up. Uh, otherwise, I swear to God, we're all going to look terrible. Um, so yeah, here's hoping this works out, John. Because boy, it is. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. I mean, given he was he's he had a, he had a pretty raw deal with Peugeot um, last year on that Mahindra. He's had a lot of chances on good machinery to be able to be a success, and it's not really quite worked out for him yet. And if you think if now's now's a good a time as any for him, because again, this is like I said, this is year six of him in Moto three. Um, year five, I think of him as a full timer, and it's not quite come together. And if it doesn't happen this time, maybe then it'll be the time where we start thinking, maybe, maybe Carl rides the guy instead. Who knows, mm. or something like that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, I mean, because as I mentioned, not only is this a British talent team, we're also going to see the launch of the British Talent Cup. Um, that will officially kick off in 2018, um, and there are going to be selection processes over the course of this year to form the field for that. Um, most notably in the run-up to the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Um, and I guess the the first question I would have, and it's a pretty basic question, but is this necessary, um, a British Talent Cup? Um, and, and I guess what worries me and what would worry many people, if they look at the British crop of riders at the moment in the Grand Prix paddock, they've all been around for a while. 
Um, mm-hmm. If you look at, I mean, John McPhee, as I mentioned, he debuted in 2011 in Grand Prix. Um, in terms of the rest of the riders in Moto2, Danny Kent, he debuted in, I reckon, 2009, I want to say. Um, Danny uh-huh. Kent made his debut on the Lambretta. Um, elsewhere, we have the four in MotoGP. Sam Lowe's debuted in 2015, but that was as a World Super Sport champion, so he'd been around a lot longer than that. Cal yeah. Crutchlow debuted in 2011, having won in World Superbikes. Scott Redding debuted back in 2008. Well, he won in 2008, didn't he, at Donington. Bradley Smith debuted in 2006. Um, right. That's how long he's been around. So we haven't really had a new face to the British motorcycle racing scene in the MotoGP paddock for a good five years now. Yeah, and we're not entirely convinced John McPhee is the guy either. And so... If you look at that, it's a bit like Formula One's problems. If you look past Lewis Hamilton, like where's the next talent going to come from? Uh, is I mean, it's, it's probably not going to be Jody and Palmer. In in the same way, if you look at the MotoGP situation, if you look at the the, the way that the dice has fallen, we're down on Scott Redding right now. Bradley Smith's taking a chance on KTM, and we haven't had a new British face to gate to say this guy could be a future world champion in forever probably not since bradley came up as a youngster rory, Skin, rory skinner's probably the closest we have at the moment in, in yeah. red bull rookies mm-hmm. but but the, the queue's not exactly long behind him no exactly and if, if we're having this talent cup like what's the prize going to be is it a guaranteed seat in the moto 3 team next year is is that going to be a thing and is it necessary to have a british talent system when we have cool fab on the british superbike chain of authority right now where they have their own talent club, the associations with Cool FAB, and as the feeder series for British Superbikes and their respective feeder leagues where that's concerned as well. We've already got a talent finding system that's going on right now. Why do we need another one? Is this Dorna being greedy? Because, hey, we, we can have any random Spanish or Italian guys get plugged in because their countries are, are, are better built for bike racing because they're getting them on mini motos from the time they're three years old or whatnot, like we had with Marquez and Lorenzo in the past. And... British guys don't have that luxury. We can't even ride mini motors on public streets. What does that tell you? But uh, yeah, because that yeah, because that's my big issue with this, or my sort of concern with this is that mm. uh, we've we've just mentioned earlier in this show in World Superbikes Race One, Phillip Island. A week ago, we had a British top five um, in the World Superbike race, um, and 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 as you say, we have Cool Fab who have got. Uh, links to British Superbikes, and we have, I think, six British Superbike teams that have junior teams in Cool Fab um, yep. as a way of sort of simplifying the ladder up to British Superbikes for them. And my big question is, is the British Talent Cup going to increase the pool? Is it going to grow the pool of talent? Or is it simply going to split it um, and send them in two different directions up two different ladders? Um, and that's my big direction because the way I see it, these two don't mix unless you're going to grow the pool of talent because these riders, I mean, are we going to have a, 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 a crop of talent in World Superbikes like Jonathan Ray, Tom Sykes, Chaz Davies, Leon Camia, Alex Lowe's, Eugene Laverty? Are we still going to get that in World Superbikes if a lot of these riders are going to get diverted into the Dorna-backed British Talent Cup? Is it simply going to split the pool in half and send them in two different directions? Which doesn't make sense because Dorna owns both Worlds and, Mo- and yeah. MotoGP. If you're going, I, I, down don't, I don't see how both both championships can win from this. Yeah, like you can't. Like, okay, imagine you're 14 years old. Imagine you're someone like Rory Skinner right now, but you're not already in the Dorna umbrella, so to speak. If you're 14 years old now, you're going to have to make a choice by the looks of it. Either go down the Dorna back British Talent Cup road 
or maybe try call FAB racing and try and get into a feeder series under the BSB umbrella instead. Like the moment you force talent to choose from the time they're 13 or 14, you risk cutting the pool in half. You risk basically just churning the talent pool dry a little bit because you, you, you force them to take one path or the other. There should be one uniformed laddered feeder system. And, Right now, we it looks like we're going to have two, and I think it's because Dawn is being a bit greedy about the whole thing. It's like what, like if you have British talent, if you make your division appealing enough, people will knock on the door to try and get in anyway. Like, so I don't know what you need a British talent cup for at all, and I'm not entirely sure if they can both coexist with Cool FAB Racing and other elements like that, where they've already got British talent in the pipeline. And now they're going to be thinking, did I make the right choice? Should I just waited for Dawn to start this talent cup instead? Do I want to go down the Moto3, Moto2 road instead? Or do I want to try and focus on superbikes instead? Which right now is dominated by British talent. Um, These guys are not getting any younger. I mean, they're all guys in their late 20s, early 30s. And who's going to be the next wave? Like, Mm. all we've got right now is Carl Ride. And... I'm not sure once that current generational crop of Sykes, Ray, Davies, Laverty, etc. moves on, who's going to be the next guys? And if you're forcing teenagers to make a choice between their education and two different separate talent feeding processes, the odds of you finding the one person that could be amazing and then making them choose between which path they want to go down ultimately is just going to make both fields look weaker, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, because this isn't like WWE doing a brand split and, you know, no. oh, because Raw and SmackDown, superstars, they're both going to get more opportunity to show what they can do and both grow and get better as a result of this. This is, a, this is we're talking about a, a motorcycle racing series here where if you divide the talent, and sp- the talent and split them into two, you're diluting two championships rather than having one strong championship. Um, because it's it's a competition, it's a competition between the best of the best, and and that's my worry. And and like I say, this this British Talent Cup may well um, strengthen British prospects in the Grand Prix paddock. It may lead to more Brits coming through into Moto Three and getting that chance. But it, but my worry is it's going to come at the expense of BSB. We, we, you know, BSB is going to suffer because less riders are going to go down the British Superbike path, and less British riders are therefore going to go into World Superbikes. And st- I don't like I said, I don't see how both te- both programs can win from this. Um, no. And and if you look at if you compare this to sort of you know Britain's lagging behind the likes of Italy and Spain at the moment in terms of talent in the Grand Prix paddock, but is that exactly something new? Maybe not. I mean, maybe we've. Maybe I think we've been a little bit I mean, spoiled. Are we asking for too? Are we, is, is, is it asking a bit too much for us to be competing on the same level as Italy and Spain? Given particularly Spain, given the infrastructure and the circuits they have. Yeah, exactly. We don't have that level of infrastructure in Spain. We don't have the bike racing culture that Spain has. I mean, you look at the backstories. Mark Marquez was on mini motos when he was three, mm-hmm. and you know, like Jorge, like in in in, in Spanish culture, it's. Bike racing is it's it's part of the blood. Yeah, and if you look at if you look at British motorcycle racing, and I've been to the last few British Grand Prix where it's been so well attended, the atmosphere is fantastic. Mm. But if you look at in national terms, it's still a niche sport. Absolutely, it's it's like if a British rider wins a world. Like, I mean, Jonathan Ray won the world title in World Superbikes last year, and he got like the smallest mini heading in like 14 pages back in the sports section. Oh, Jonathan Ray wins second world Superbike title. They, they, like. 
Unfortunately, and pardon my language, yeah. the British media doesn't give a shit about yeah. migrants. We're not, we're not complaining about that. that. That's just how it is. Just how it is. Exactly. In, in Spain, when it was Pedrosa versus Lorenzo, the Spanish press were talking like it was a golden era for bike races, and they were fighting for the column inches. Mm. Those two were at war, and it, it became a national story of Pedrosa versus Lorenzo, and the two different sides, the two different camps, the two different training methods, and how that became the foundation of Spanish bike racing as we look at it now. The bike racing culture, and again, it, it's, it's kind of a British economic problem as well, where most people can't even afford to get into motorsport in the first place, especially over here where, you know, if we want to get into the, the karting road in, 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 in Great Britain, for example, it's so expensive and you've got to basically give up a part of your education to get there in the first place because you've got to be on these bikes from the time you're 12, 13 years old. You, you, I've heard the case of many bike riders at that age who can who can ride them up but they can't read and write properly and that's alarming so there's a whole bunch of moral and possible ethical problems to come with this too so you're right i don't think britain has enough of a biking culture where they can have a full-on feeder system like this like and i think as well part of the issue is we've been spoiled in recent years we've we've been very lucky to have a flood of talent come through in the last five or six years like you say bradley smith scott redding cal crutchlow the lowes brothers um we've been very lucky in recent times that we've had you know we're gonna have what five british guys in moto gp next season that's unprecedented compared to where we were 10 years ago where we were looking for the next guy um so i think a part of it has to be like well sure it's nice you've got a talent cut but is the talent there that's mm. what i'm starting to wonder <sighs> Yeah, that's the thing. I think it's important that if this if this is going to become a thing, and it's clear that Dorna is serious about this, that it, as I say, the important thing is, and, and we're not saying this can't work, but it's it will only work if it grows the pool of talent rather than splits it. Um, that's the important thing here. That's what this has to achieve. Um, and hmm. I think, and I think it starts. If that's going to happen, it starts before a talent cup. You need to you need to get riders, or you need to get kids on bikes a lot earlier than you know the age where they could be eligible for a talent cup. Um, Seven, for that to eight, happen nine. exactly yeah. Mark Marquez didn't step foot on a bike at the first time at age 14 15 he was he was already winning things by that age take yeah. Fabio Quartararo for instance um, who was a junior world champion at 15 um, so so that's the kind of age we're talking um, if, if there is a positive to be seen in this and if we're if we're expecting or hoping for this to succeed can we take hope in the fact that previous instances of this from Dorna like the Asia Talent Cup like the CEV when Dorna does throw its weight behind a junior talent cup, it tends to work. They tend to get it right. Maybe this is where it starts. Maybe this is the seed being planted for the future of British bike racing. I don't know. I sound like a PR officer when I say some say things like that because I think we're a long way from that right now. Again, I just, I just don't think we have the culture, the people on a, on a grassroots level. Like, is there 50 people out there? Or is there even maybe 30 people that could fill out a talent cup right now with enough bikes? outside of cool fab already or maybe they do double duty who knows but mm, yeah i'm 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 not entirely sure right now that there is enough of a deep enough talent pool in this country where you can justify putting on a talent cup like that when you've already got the bsb ladder cool fab racing and other feeder series to get into and a lot of them are even thinking of going to spain to race in that cev yeah. title in the first place because that's where the talent is so right now like i'm not sure whether that's the right spot at all that's the problem yeah it, it is an interesting one because uh, as i say if you look at previous examples of this like the asia talent cup it has done such a good job 
of, of bringing riders from that part of the world. But that was a part of the world that didn't really have any sort of a representation in the Grand Prix paddock at all up until that uh, Talent Cup started. Now mm. we have the likes of um, Ayuma Sasaki, who's going to make his debut this season in Moto3. He is the Asia Talent Cup champion and the Red Bull Rookies champion. Um, he won both of those last season. Uh, we're going to have the young tie rider Adarat Fubapat making his debut as well. We had last season, we had the likes of Powi winning a Grand Prix, having Absolutely. come from the Asian Talent Cup. Two races. Yeah, and, and we, do, you know, we don't need us to tell you how strong the CEV has been in producing Grand Prix talents. Many of them are already in MotoGP. Um, it's been that good uh, a feeder series. Alex Rins is a key example of that, um, is doing so well in CEV before ever arriving in the Grand Prix paddock. Um, so these kind of talent cups do tend to work, but as I say, it needs the talent to be there. And, and yeah, without repeating ourselves, my worry is when this, this selection process takes place in September, or just prior to September, just prior to the British Grand Prix at the end of August, um, that selection process, though, where are those riders coming from? Are they just going to come from riders that would have raced in Motostar in the BSB paddock, which means that that series is going to suffer? That's my big concern. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. And we certainly, I think we're not we're not here as the harbourers are doing. We want this to work, absolutely. Um, but I think we just have some some reservations at the moment in terms of how it's going to work. The British Talent Cup, as I say, the selection process takes place later this year. Um, Jeremy McWilliams is the uh, talent scout who's going to be uh, playing a key role in this mm. um, in terms of selecting the, uh, the the talent that will take part in this. The British Talent Cup will then race that Dorna Run events in 2018, amongst others, um, including the UK round of the World Superbikes at Donington and the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Um, it also says a range of circuits in the UK and Spain will form a tentative base for the proposed calendar. Um, so that, that sort of leads me to think that we won't be seeing the British Talent Cup at places like Cadwell Park. It'll be places like Aragon instead. God, can, like, are people that's going to be running these teams be able to afford flying out to Spain for multiple weekends and being able to run a crew to keep a bike together as well? I mean, is there going to be some kind of financial commitment required here? I mean, yeah, is that, that, that's the key thing. I mean, Red Bull Rookies is just kind of if it's going to be like Red Bull Rookies where they all have the same bike and 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 so on, then okay, uh, they're all going to have a Honda NSV 250, so it's going to be the Honda that you sort of the sort of basic version of the Honda we see in the Moto3 Championship at the yep. moment that's going to be run, but just for the riders, even if, you, even if you're not taking a crew with them, it's still expense to, to get a, a 15, 16-year-old kid all the way out to Spain for a race at Aragon uh, or somewhere like that, and which is not easily done, uh, given the amount of expense it takes to put a kid in any level of British motorsport at that level. It's Absolutely. not cheap. Um, so so that is the key uh, that is the key issue here. If you are a young kid listening to this though and you do want to become um, a part of the British Talent Cup, here's how you do it. The first ever selection program will take place in the lead up in the week leading up to the 2017 British Grand Prix at Silverstone, where prospective runners will be put through their paces and the best offered the chance to race in the Cup's inaugural 2018 season. Riders are then on the road to the MotoGP trademark with the ladder to the top running from the 5th of may um or the application process running from the 5th of may to the 18th of june so you've got a six-week window to get your applications in riders who will be invited to the selection process will be informed before the 21st of july um and as i say the um selection process itself the talent sort of the the time for you to prove your worth if you like for this talent cup is in august before the british grand prix uh, which is at the end of that month uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this develops jeremy williams playing a key role and carmelo espaleta and dorna throwing their support behind it so if it doesn't work it certainly won't be for the lack of effort um, so we wish them all of the very very best 
After this short break, we will talk about the current crop of MotoGP riders, in particular Mar Marquez and Marit Vinales. Will they be the two that will compete for this season's championship? If testing has any indication, they may well be. We'll discuss that in just a moment. And you're back with us here on Bike Live on Motorsport 101. And let's talk testing because MotoGP is just a few weeks away from getting underway in Qatar. There is one more test to go as well in Qatar, which we'll talk about on our next show in a couple of weeks. Um, but let's talk about the story so far, Dre, MotoGP testing. Um, so far, it's... It's appearing to suggest that 2017 will be a two-horse race because two riders have very much dominated testing to this point. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like it's going to be the young matchup everybody's kind of been wanting to see, and that's Mark Marquez versus Maverick Vinales, and both of them have been scintillating. Maverick has topped many a time in sheets, but also Mark Marquez very quietly has put together some phenomenal race runs out there. Again, you look at the numbers, you look at the lap times, you start crunching some numbers and you realize, okay, Marquez's race pace looks phenomenal around certain paces. And again, it's like the Honda story of last year. They're not really happy with the bike or anything like that. Yet Marquez is still finding a way to make it work. And, on the other side of the garage, Maverick's just scintillatingly quick at every given opportunity, and it's terrifying, mm -hmm. um, no matter which way you look at it. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here, but it, those are the two guys that are standing out right now. Yeah, and Vinales has been the big story throughout testing. He has been the outright fastest man at every test so far. He set the fastest lap in Valencia back in in October. He set uh, in November, sorry. He set the fastest lap at Sepang at the start of February, and then he set the fastest lap at Phillip Island too. Uh, a few weeks after that, but that's almost not the the main story with Maverick, is it, Dre? Because uh, I was taking a look at David Emmett's fantastic analysis of of every test that's taken place so far. Mm -hmm. It's not so much his one lap pace; it's the consistency Maverick's showing. He sets a litany of one twenty eight at Phillip Island, and very few riders could even do a twenty eight. Yeah, that, that's what it is. Like, Ma like Maverick is taking to this Yamaha like a duck to water, and I feared that was that's what would happen because the Yamaha has always been a consistently strong package, and they're just the best all-round bike in the field where you can plug almost anybody on it, and it just goes. And Maverick is, is obviously a phenomenal talent, and he's been incredible in everything he's ridden to this point he is just so so good and this is no surprise to anyone who's backed maverick from the start um and yeah he, he's so impressive right now there doesn't seem to be a hole in his game and the confidence the the adaptability the speed of which he's adapting to everything and just the overall speed itself it, he's phenomenal right now yeah he's phenomenal and Mark Marquez has had a very tricky winter as we mentioned with his his shoulder dislocation uh, last weekend um, in a private test for Honda at Jerez and is the very fact that they chose Honda to do a private test at Jerez in between the Phillip Island and Qatar tests just indicate that they're not quite where they want to be yet no they've still got issues with their electronics and that seems to be what's killing them right now um, at the moment it just seems like um, once again the, the engine seems a little bit too aggressive and they can't get it together and they need the extra third year in a row they've had this problem yeah 
30 minute round. Well, it looks like Honda just keep like Honda seem to have the formula down first time round, but they've tweaked it and they seemingly have made it worse year to year. And it's just not quite worked for them. And again, the fact they had to order their, their preseason tests early just screams to me that, you know, they're not quite there yet. And they, 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 basically had one less day to run the whole thing either because of course the other their testing days was rained out which didn't exactly help either and then of course Marcus lost his quarter bone in so it's not really worked out how the plan was going to be and Opa has not been the most positive guy in the world and mm. you know Marquez again has been skeptical saying again you know we're not we're not comfortable we're not quite where we were we're not quite where we, where we want to be but the kid's a phenomenal talent for a reason, and I have no question that Marquez will find the way to make it work. He'll, he'll probably be right up the front in Qatar like he almost always is, but like at some point, Honda's going to have to really address this bike's concerns. They have the best talent, young talent this sport has ever seen in their back pocket. The problem is Yamaha might have one too with the other side yeah. of the garage now, and that could be a serious problem. Yeah, then they, they can't mess about this year with, with that. And, and yeah, it's almost as if Honda's... Yeah, they've they've been they've made so many mistakes in recent years with their bike that it's almost been like a case of oh it's okay because Mark Marquez balls to compensate, um, but I think the, you you can't just rest on that for too long because as as you mentioned Yamaha have now got a guy in Vinales who can take advantage of an area where perhaps Yamaha didn't take advantage last season um, with Rossi and Lorenzo. Um, that's not to say Rossi can't this year, of course. And of course. Where, where do we sit with Rossi at the moment? Because he's been he's been sort of languishing down the field in test. He was second quickest on the first day in Phillip Island, but then didn't really go any quicker for the rest of the test uh, as he sort of got went down the wrong route on setup, got in a bit of a model. Um, he's had a few issues. He's been ill. He was ill at Sepang, so he wasn't really, uh, particularly on his best form there. Rossi hasn't been particularly good in testing so far, but does that even matter with Valentino Rossi, given that he has a different mode, essentially, when the day is Sunday? He's too busy being broody and salty to the media to do anything about that. Mm. Um, no, but in all seriousness, um, yeah, I, Rossi's... Like, no matter how bad he is in testing, will he still be there in Qatar? You kind of feel yes. he will. Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because he's Valentino Rossi. He always finds a way to get up there, even if... He's not winning. I mean, there's a reason why he's been re- he's been runner up for the last three years. He's been, he's developed a knack of consistency again that similar to what he had in his prime. And the only difference is he, he hasn't got the strength of ability to win races like that automatically anymore. But he'll still be competitive. He won't make mistakes. He'll always almost always keep the bike upright. That's almost a guarantee with him. And he'll just he'll just find a way to get it done. And that's what he's always been able to do. And I don't see any reason why that would change. I mean, yeah, like he's all—he's never been the best tester. He never really has been. He's always like been third or fourth on the testing sheets. He's not been the most comfortable out there. He's—he's he's always been a guy that tries to market himself with custom helmets in testing and more than yes. test itself and always talk, and still talking about 2015 and you know keeping his name in people's mouths regardless, even if he's not testing particularly well. I don't know if it's a deliberate distraction tactic. Or anything like that. I mean, I wouldn't put it past Valentino at this point. That's just the kind of person that he is. But on the whole, I mean, there's no reason why he won't be up there in Qatar. He's on. A, he's got a phenomenal team. He knows the bike. He knows the setup. He will find a way. He almost always does. Mm. Yeah, it's just interesting to see how that relationship with Maverick will evolve as the year mm-hmm. goes on. Um, and it's interesting that Maverick, he seems to have this obsession with Marquez. He hasn't really mentioned Rossi at all in the winter. But he's always mm. keeping an eye on what Marquez is doing. Um, through preseason testing and, and as you mentioned with Valentino Rossi he's always going to be there and as, as David Emmett said on the Paddock Pass the, the, the show they did following um, Philip Island Rossi will be up there because Rossi's Rossi 
That's just what yes. that's just what he does. He's always there. He'll always find a way on Sunday to make that bite work. It's just you know you don't you, you don't turn it around at the last minute so many times by accident. You do that because you're very very good. Um, and, and Rossi will shortly figure it out. Um, what about Jorge Lorenzo? Will he figure it out with Ducati? Because it really struck me at Sepang on day one how slow he was. Uh, on that first day of testing at Sepang, where Casey Stoner stole the headlines by finishing fastest, Lorenzo was nowhere on that first day. While everyone was looking at Stoner <laughs> and the salad box on the back of the bike, Lorenzo was struggling. Um, now, now, quietly, he's chipped away at it through the tests, but he's always been sort of back end of the top 10, and he's always been a shade slower than Davizioso. So Lorenzo's not quite there yet. He doesn't look that way, does he? Um, the only blessing for him is that Ducati's always strong at the start of the calendar and then they fade by the time you get to Europe. Yeah, what's the betting he wins the... in Qatar? <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Um, it's what the... I'll have to look that up later. But um, it's one of those things where Lorenzo, again, another guy that has a knack of just finding a way to get things done, even if... But this is a new challenge for him. This is this, this is an alien team to him. It's, it's a brand new bike. He's, he's, he's said himself during this, he's got to find ways of getting this done where he was talking about, for instance, the fact he can trial bake later on the Ducati that he did on the Yamaha. He's got to get used to that. And it's a learning process. And Dovizioso knows the team. And he's also just a more flexible sort of talent where Dovi's been able to ride anything you put him on and be able to find a way to be competitive on it. And Lorenzo's not had that luxury. He's had a different luxury, the luxury of being able to have a championship winning bike for a, the best part of a decade now. Um, who knows? Maybe he still has one. But... It's going to take him some time to get there, and I'm not surprised that Dovi is strong in the early going, given he knows the team, knows the system, knows the bike. It wouldn't surprise me if Dovi was right up there in Qatar as well, because Ducati's always been strong around there. Very nearly won the last two years, in fact, that he's he's been up there challenging for wins. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think Lorenzo will get there. I think the early rounds will compensate because Ducati is strong. In the early rounds, when we get to Europe, then we think we'll really see where Lorenzo is. Yeah, it's almost as if I think we were not so much fooled, but we saw Lorenzo go so well in Valencia straight away, having jumped off the Yamaha, and we sort of thought, well, he's he's actually quick, but Lorenzo does love Valencia. He did win that Grand Prix there on the, on the on the Yamaha shortly before that. And just looking through the the testing we've seen so far, Lorenzo was quicker than Davizioso on day one of Valencia, that post season post race test in November. He hasn't been quicker than him since then. Davizioso right. has been quicker than Lorenzo on every test. Day since that day in Valencia in November, uh, November the 14th. So, yeah, Lorenzo just a shade slower than Dovi so far, um, proving, if anything, that Dovi is no mug. Um, but Ducati, in terms of Ducati themselves, are they, are they a shade behind? I mean, as you mentioned, they always seem to come good earlier in the season, but save for Stoner on day one of Sepang, they haven't really figured up the front with Vinales and Marquez, have they? They don't, and I just don't think they look like they're up there right now. I think, like, at the moment... Um, there are a couple, maybe a couple of attempts of harm, but we've heard this story before with Ducati. This happens a lot with the with these two, where you know Ducati are just not quite where they want to be, and it's they're always seemingly playing catch up. And again, I don't think it will be the bike itself because again they always start strong. The issue I think is going to be when you get to the European, when you get to in season development, that's when they seem to struggle and that's when they seem to lose pace to honda and yamaha the blessing is they have a round that's almost a guaranteed win now in you know in, in at the rebel ring in austria <laughs> but um which again definitely helps it helps with the pr um but yeah right now they look a couple of steps behind the, the big two and that's not 
where Chikadi wanted to be. I mean, how many times have I had to, 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 have had to explain to people, oh, yeah, we're the third best team right now, or even now, maybe the fourth best team, because Suzuki look very strong indeed right now. Yeah, this is it, in that Ducati may actually, instead of looking ahead to try and catch up with Honda and Yamaha, may actually have to look over their shoulders, because Suzuki looked quick with Yanone and Rins now. Um, Rins, who looks pretty, looked like a fish out of water in Valencia back in November. He looks very quick now, and like he's really mm-hmm. getting to grips with it. It was quicker than Yanone at Phillip Island. Uh, and not Suzuki, but a prettier look there or thereabouts, don't they, with Alex Spargaro, who's showing that when he's on a when he's on a bike or when he's on a team or in a team where Pat's expectations are slightly lower see Aspar ART um, he's pretty quick and he's looking quick on the Aprilia too he was one of the stars for me at Phillip Island just every time I looked at the testing times Alej was a few places higher than I thought he'd be yeah absolutely and again I'm, I'm, I'm glad Alej again like it's almost like he does better when he's not in the limelight yeah. it's really weird like that again he was the king of the CRT era where you know unlimited machinery and unlimited parts he was able to guide a team to some really solid top eight level results and even that one podium in aragon um but the suzuki experiment he didn't like where he was in the team he didn't seem to like where he was at the time and again we had maverick come along and you know upseat him effectively which is almost no disgrace really given how good that kid really is but he's now back under the aprilia bonnet aprilia again seemed to make real progress last year seemed to be getting into the top 10 a lot more frequently and hey you know if the, if this works out in the long term maybe we'll get back to the old leash where we thought hey maybe he's a top 10 rider in the field now just in the wrong team i mean maybe maybe it was the suzuki environment just wasn't the right spot for him but it seems that you know right now he's looking very fast indeed it is and he was top 10 uh at philip as well he was 10th fastest on a 129.3 and a pretty wouldn't it be that a dream of doing a 29.3 um, in previous years around Phillip Island. Uh, although, having said that, there, there were signs last year, weren't they, with, with Bautista and Bradle that they were getting there with that bike. We saw them in, in Q2 a few times towards the end of the season. Aprilia, we saw them finishing the top 10 a few times with Bradle and Bautista, partly down to some of the wet races we had. But there were definitely signs that they were improving. And, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if Aleish, given that he's effectively now the team leader again, which he wasn't a Suzuki with the, yeah. the rise of Maverick, um, that Aleish can lead that team and really take that team forward. My, my, my only fear, I suppose, with Aleish is, is he going to be in that same boat again where when Aprilia get there, they want a rider who's slightly better than Aleish. But he's, he's, yeah. kind of, he's that guy you want when you're building a team. But once the team is built and ready to win, Aleish isn't really the guy you want on the bike. Um, yeah. That would kind of be my worry for him. Um, he's, he's got a rookie teammate this year, Aleish Espargaro, Sam Lowe's, who's been quiet through testing, given that he's mainly been running on 2016 machinery as he learns <laughs> MotoGP bikes. We'll see him on 2017 spec parts, I think a little later, most notably in Qatar. But the other rookies have impressed us, Dre. And have we all been a little bit guilty of completely underestimating the duo at Tech 3 of Folger and Zarco? Yes. Um, it's, it's a short answer to that one. And again, I looked at the times and I thought, wait a minute, what's Tech 3 doing this high up? And this is the team where... You probably expect the quality to come from the least, but we've got to remember they're using last year's Yamaha level bike, which was a very solid bike indeed, a bike that won multiple races. And, of course, it's never going to be the 2017 bike, and, of course, Yamaha would never let themselves get beat by the satellite team, not on a regular basis anyway. But Jonas Volga, you know, again, he looks like he's taken to the bike very well. And Johan Zarco, we forget, is an excellent rider. There's no getting around it. He is one of the strongest riders that Moto2 has ever produced. Just, again, in his prime in Moto2, he was so, so good. He, he, he was the complete package by the looks of it. And 
as it stands right now, he, again, they look they look like their top ten level speed in testing right now, and that yeah. is solid. That that's kind of where Yamaha want their B team to be right now. And yeah, if they can get that up there, maybe Zarco's got a future in, in here after all. Maybe it'll just be another experienced veteran that just kind of fades out like like Mikakalio was. Um, Zarco looks like he could be here to stay for a while. And Volga, I mean, he's already had interviews talking about how. He doesn't fear anybody, and that you know he is—he's out here to try and impress people. And they look like they've got a good package underneath. And Tech Free looks like they could be back to something like their best with Hervé Poncherol there. And I hope so because I don't want to see—I don't want to see Tech Free fade into nothing. I want to see them challenge the factory runners more frequently. That would be nice to see. So I, ho- I hope they've found something there. Yeah, Zarko is tenth at Sepang on a one fifty-nine-seven. That's just four tenths off Vinales, who did a fifty-nine-three at that test, and Rossi did a 59.5 on the other factory bike, and then it's at Phillip Island, Folgate at a 29.0 around Phillip Island, and was fourth quickest in that test, he only had Vinales and the Repsol Hondas ahead of him, uh, Phillip Mm -hmm. Island, so they they are quick, make no mistake about it, Um, both of the Tech 3 rookies, Um, and Folger's, I think Folger kind of threatened that he'd do this, he'd be the guy that would set the headline lap times, while Zarco would be the sort of all-round better rider. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if that reflects itself in Qatar when they finally go racing because, you know, they're, they're, again, similar to what we talked about with Yamaha in in, motor, in World Superbikes, there's two very burgeoning reputations there where one's probably going to take a hit, whatever happens, no matter how good they both are, one's going to be behind the other um, as, as two rookies moving into MotoGP. So that one's going to be fascinating. Um, the two riders that Tech 3 lost are both on KTMs now with their, their introduction to MotoGP. KTM as the newest factory team uh, in MotoGP. And how do we think they've gone so far? They haven't exactly been threatening the top 10 so far, but I think it would have been unreasonable to expect them to be, uh, mm-hmm. given that they're so new into MotoGP. But they're solidly midfield, wouldn't you say? Looks like, looks like it. I don't think they're going to be at the back. Let's put it that way. I think they have a decent little pack, package here, I think. Yeah, both in the they're, 29s at Phillip Island. Yeah, I think they're both in the 29s. I mean, they have two excellent riders, probably the two best independent riders the sport had before they poached them in terms of consistency and ability. Paula Spagaro especially, I think, is a tremendous rider. And I hope KTM's got something here, because I think they do. I think they could could keep them to the top 10 on many occasions this season, because they seem to have something here. I think they seem to be further along the path than where Suzuki was, for example, when they came back, where they had, you know, the occasional top eight, but they weren't really consistently up there for a round. I think KTM could be about in that same maybe eight to 12 sort of level right now. If they can get up there and they can, you know, score chunky points on multiple occasions, I think they'll take that for a first year back. And if they can maybe beat the odd satellite Honda, given how KTM hates to hates Honda to bits, they would absolutely relish that opportunity. Yes, so, they, they didn't hide that, did they? In, in their, no. their preseason launch, Honda are our most hated rivals, they called them. Um, and uh, yeah, Paul and Bradley were a tenth apart, which is kind of what you'd expect for them. That's, that's kind of... You know, you know that the bike is pretty much at its level when your two riders are virtually on identical times. Sixteenth uh, and eighteenth for Paul and Bradley at Phillip Island, both as I say in the one twenty nines. Um, so a good start for them. And the one thing, the bike does look a bit loose. It has to be said. Bradley Smith admitted at Phillip Island that he was guilty of riding like a pansy um, at Phillip Island <laughs> because he said that the bike was just so loose he didn't feel brave enough to really wring its neck just yet. 
Um, but he finally did that on the final day and ended up doing a 29-9 on it, um, just a tenth off Paul, who was two places ahead of him. So uh, KTM looking looking solid so far, and surely you've got to think the only weight is up for them. Um, they're just going to get better and better um, the more, more laps they turn in MotoGP. It is going to be a fascinating season in MotoGP, Dre. We'll, we'll look ahead to it very briefly now because our season preview is up next, our next bike live here on Motorsport 101 in a couple of weeks. But... There are so many ingredients to this season. Just those those names we've already talked about. The, so many different manufacturers, so many different star riders this season. We keep saying every year that this is the strongest MotoGP field ever assembled. And there are so many ingredients to why this season should be just as good as last season, which was one of the all-time classics. I'm getting sick of saying this now. This is the, this yeah. the third year in a row we've been here. And we said the fuel just keeps finding ways to get better. And there is so much on the plate for this year. More factories. You're probably going to get Marquez versus Vinales. How will Vinales fare in his first season at the top? Where will Rossi and Lorenzo, the experienced names, fit into all this? What about Cal Crutchlow? Given he had two wins last year. We've not even spoken about him yet. Where, 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 where he could play into, in, into all this. Suzuki, where are they going to be with a new team? With Ian Oni and Rins, two totally new riders on there. KTM, where will they fit in? Aprilia, will they keep improving? What about the other satellite teams, given they're going to be on better bikes too, with both, for example, Hector Barbara um, and, and and who else is going to be on there? What about Vara Bautista, both on GP16s, for example. Um, what about Pramac? Is, is this the make or break here for Scott Redding? It goes on and on and on, and there is so many intriguing angles that are going to be playing up into this MotoGP season, and I can't wait for it to get started, and obviously talk about that in much greater detail in a couple of weeks time we will and we will also cover the second round of the world superbike and world super sport championships at Buriram in thailand the thai world superbike round uh, which is coming up very very soon before all of that motorsport 101 returns next week dre hope all the listeners are done shooting their shots hope we've uh hey hope we've done a good job of um putting some couples together doing our bit uh for the listeners out there what's coming up next week then up next week, we'll be previewing oh, the Formula 1 season, really. And probably, oh, sorry, take that back. Wrong season. We'll be previewing the IndyCar season that starts up next weekend on March 12th in St. Petersburg. And we'll be t- talking about Formula 1 testing throughout the liveries, the cars, how they look, the testing period in general, and how pessimistic I'll be about Ferrari's chances next season. So look forward to that. Most likely next Friday. I can't give you a guaranteed date on that just yet. Hopefully, it'll be on our social media by the time you listen to this episode. But uh, I'm going to tentatively say next Friday for Motorsport 101. So, yeah, big F1 testing wrap-up and an IndyCar season preview. Can't wait for that. Yeah, for full news on when that does go live, uh, Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101, Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. I've just got an image uh, of, of Dre looking at the testing times from this week, seeing Ferrari's going so well on slower tyres to the Merc, just shaking his head going, nope, don't believe it. Don't believe it. I am off, I am off this narcotic suddenly. <laughs> I, I do not believe in our chances. Like, I, like, honestly, it's less harmful for me this way if I don't believe in us. Like, I'm full pessimistic right now. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, for, for more of that, tune into Motorsport 101 next week. That just about does us for this edition, episode two of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101 in 2017. And we look forward to joining you for episode three in a couple of weeks where we will review tie world superbikes and look ahead to the MotoGP season. From the two of us until then, It's goodbye and thank you for listening.